I just think that we both wanted to kind of, before we got into this podcast, um, tell a little bit of the backstory and just mention that, you know, it, it never really was and never is going to be about the names, quote unquote, right? Like, yep. I think everyone was like, whoa, Scott Morrison, an assistant with the Celtics, but he's just a regular dude. He's a regular guy like you and me, um, who's made goals for himself. He's stayed driven and, and been able to pursue with some luck and uh, some hard work, right? And determination. And that's what we want people to take away. That doesn't take away from, you know, a ball Dylan story, right? A guy who's super well-educated, smart, um, is affecting youth every single day in a positive manner. It doesn't take away from Lexi Durr and her story of adversity and trying to get back after ACL surgeries and going and playing in Idaho. So the fact that, you know, Jay Triano is about to be our next guest is not, you know, it's not the pinnacle of our podcast. The next name that we have doesn't matter, you know, where what they've accomplished and where they are. It's more their story. And I think Jay provides a great story. Some similar things that we've heard from other people. Um, yes, he's going to give some insight into Steve Nash. Yes, he's going to talk about the NBA um, and the Olympics and different experiences, which make it awesome. But in the end, I don't think, you know, a hoop's journey wasn't about this, you know, trying to one-up each name. That's not what it's about. And I think it was important to just mention that, you know, the cool part for us was like we sent him on Instagram the Andrew Mavis podcast just because yeah. we thought, hey, it'd be cool because he could relive, you know, the 2000 Olympics and, and may have talked about that. And whatever, eight, nine days go by and Jay's obviously not a huge social media guy, but he's got a little bit of presence. And and then next thing you know, bing, like he's messaging back and saying, oh, of course I remember you and how are you? And awesome, I'll check it out. And then what does he say? He goes, so when do I get to yeah. be on the podcast? <laughs> and this is what I want people to know is that like, we didn't go and ask him to be on the podcast. We just sent him a Andrew Mavis's podcast and he being a humble, willing guy who loves to talk about sports and saw some value in our podcast contacted us did we have jay triano on our radar as like a hopeful guest yeah did we expect it to happen in the first like three months of doing it no um did you at one point want to save his story yes and what did i say to you <laughs> what i just told the listeners right it's yeah. not about saving names jay triano was the most humble guy if you walked into a pub and sat down and chatted with him you would get no ego you would get no entitlement. You would get nothing that would make you feel like he had accomplished or done more than you in his life just because he's an assistant coach and had been a head coach in the NBA. I think as cool as it is, you know, it's just the power of people's message, right? Yeah. Jay looks at the podcast and he goes, wow, this looks like it'd be fun. And then next thing you know, on the week that we were going to take off and not yeah. record... We're scrambling to get him recorded yeah. on, on the Monday, yep. right? Yeah. Because uh, that's the day that worked for him. So, yeah, one day, do we want to try and get Steve Nash on here? Absolutely. Do we have our own little goals? For sure. But people's stories are, are really what it's about. And the takeaways for young people, for people like myself, for people like you. And it's not just X's and O's. It's about life. It's about being authentic. It's about learning from your mistakes. It's about treating people well. Um, and we could go on and on. Obviously, I could go on and on because I kind of am. I'm halfway through my coffee here. <laughs> but yeah, we've got Jay Triano for you. Yeah, we're super pumped. Yeah, we're thrilled. Yeah, we kept it a secret. But after Jay Triano, the next guest will be just as good. 
and the next guest will be just as good after that and a hoops journey will continue and we're we're grateful for all our listeners we're grateful for the feedback we're getting um and it's been fun and we're excited to just keep it going and letting people just chop it up with us Oh God, the best part is roasting you and people actually enjoying it. So it just feeds, feeds the fire for me, you know? It really does. It's, I mean, it's not even in a podcasting, it's just a life thing for you. I think it just, <laughs> it really brings you a lot of joy and I think I'm just an easy target. I'm going to bring that a lot on myself, but. Imagine what it's like being married to me. <laughs> wow. Shout out Regan. Absolute saint. Yeah. Well, 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 ladies and gentlemen, where do we begin tonight? Pretty thrilled to have, if you are in the loop about anything to do with Canada basketball, um, a gentleman with uh, a resume that extends over decades um, with our country, has given his game or his life to the game of basketball. A guy that uh, when I was in grade 12 sent me a letter that I still have, but then realized that uh you know, an undersized six four four man probably wouldn't go well with a, a six ten big man from uh, Ontario. A gentleman who I have never met anyone say a bad word about in the basketball community. Um, a classy human being and a man with a great story, and we are uh, beyond excited to have none other than Jay Triano on tonight. Jay, thank you for being with us. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great, and I uh, appreciate you having me on. I've uh... I followed a little bit. I know you don't know that, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I know when you had Andrew Mavis on, uh, that was a big thing because uh, Mave was one of the great players that played for for me in the 2000 Olympics. So I follow him and then saw that you had had him on. So I was like, oh, I got to get on top of this. <laughs> Mave, one of the most, as you know, on the road, one of the most well-rounded human beings you'll ever meet, right? Like between the singing, the guitar, the you name it, and just an all-around great human being. So. You know, I, and I'll tell you, I, I, I know that he's already been on and maybe shared the story, but his his involvement with our team in 2000 was why we were so good and we were able to go five and two at the Olympics 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. He he brought the guitar. Uh, I've never seen a group of athletes bond off the court like these guys did. Um, mm-hmm. I went I went into their residence a couple times and you know expecting to put out a fire or something because these guys could get crazy and they were all sitting around playing guitars and singing it with each other. We walked into the Olympic Village and five guys had guitars with them. I was like, are, are we a band or a basketball team? Like, what's going on? And, and but there was just a, a a unity of all these guys and uh, he he brought Nash with him. Like Nash was his guy and Nash was like, well, oh, learn how I want to learn how to play the guitar and then Mike. Cates, who was one of my assistant coaches, he got involved in playing the guitar. One night, they're all playing Risk, uh, a big board game, and I walk in, and I've played Risk before, and these guys are playing Risk, and, and I'm going, what are you guys doing? You're, you're not playing the right way. You should have conquered this country. And they go, no, 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 coach, you don't get it. We kick this shit out of the team that we play tomorrow, then we'll try to win the game. So they were all like converging on Australia and, and, and beating up Australia. And then they, then, then they try to win the game after they had Australia out of the, out of the tournament. I was just like, oh, man, you guys are crazy. <laughs> I love it. And I can picture Maeve right in the mix. Um, 
And this is why, you know, I remember being at Terry Fox and, you know, Donnie Van Oss and Richie asking you to come speak at our, at our athletic banquet. And so when you, you know, when you reached out and said, you'd love to jump in, I know your ability to tell stories and, and your story is so cool. Let's quickly just check in though. How, how has COVID been? Obviously it's a wild time and how are you and your family doing? And, and, you know, obviously your job got put on pause for a little bit. And so how's everything going and what, what have you guys done to kind of get through this time? Well, we've done a lot of zoom meetings with, uh, with our staff, with our players and with other, other basketball coaches, actually other coaches too, in, in different sports. Uh, I've gotten into a bunch of zoom groups. Uh, so in that way, I've turned it into a little bit of a positive. You learn from other coaches. Uh, there's one group that we have that has a, a rugby coach from, uh, Ireland, uh, an Australian rules football coach, uh, a hockey coach from the United States, a basketball coach, uh, Aussie rules football. It's just crazy, and, but it's it's really neat to interact with all these coaches. So that's been one of the things. Uh, we've we go into the uh, arena with our players right now, but you know we have these rules that the NBA put on. You have to be twelve feet away from everybody. Uh, the coaches have to wear uh, rubber gloves and a mask. The players have to wear a mask until they start doing their workout and then so it, it's really difficult but these guys are are in the prime of their careers and this is their profession they have to try to figure out you know how they're going to keep getting better because they're in their prime earning years so i feel for some of the players like that but uh for the most part it, it's tough and it's tough now because we were team 23 and only 22 teams went to orlando so mm. it's tough for me to, to sit on the outside because our young group is uh is really wants to play they really want to keep getting better and to not have be able to work with them like other teams are being able to do right now that puts us behind a little bit i think for sure, because it's just such a weird little hiccup of time that you're like, how do we fill this in, but make it competitive, but we can't make it competitive and it's individual. Yeah, interesting stuff. And I didn't realize you guys were that close to, to making it. What have you heard from the bubble or have you heard anything and how it's going for people? Or are you just kind of focusing on your own little thing and with your guys right now? Um, no, we, I, I, I'm, I'm up to date with everything that's going on in there. I mean, I've got so many teams that I've been involved with and players that I've coached before that I stay in touch with that are in the bubble. And a lot of them are Canadians. I mean, Dwight Powell sent me a message the other day and just said, coach, I can't believe people here are complaining about all this. Obviously, they've never toured with the national team like I did, uh, where you learn <laughs> where you mm -hmm. learn how to get through tough environments and, and tough conditions. And, you know, he said, uh, they've never, none of these guys have ever been to China. I took the, a team to China that Dwight was on one of his first years and uh, the accommodations were deplorable. They were horrible. Food was bad. We, we all lost weight and everything, but we went nine and zero on this trip. And to, to this day, those players say that was one of the most fun trips that they've ever been on. And, and, and I think that's the kind of thing that prepares you for this. This right now, what they're going through in Orlando is so similar to international basketball and what you do. You get to some of these countries and, and, and you're not allowed to do anything else. You, you get there. Um, you're locked in a hotel with all the other teams. You see them uh, in the hallway. Nobody else is around. And not a lot of people go to the games unless it's the host country. So it's very similar to international basketball. Yeah, so cool. And we'll can't wait to hear about all those things and then just um, all your perspective on everything you've been through. So let's just, you know, we'll get right to it. Tell us a little bit about young, you know, young Jay Triano. I know a lot of our listeners are huge basketball people and probably have had the opportunity to at least um, read your book or know a little bit about your story. But uh, 
what what were you like as a little guy and and what got you into basketball did you play a bunch of sports and um i'm gonna ask questions that i kind of already know the answer to but i i, I really feel like um you have a powerful story and and you're someone that uh you know has a lot of experience obviously but we all started somewhere so what did that look like for you well i'm a big uh i'm a competitor and i think i was from a very young age i loved playing games and uh, i played i played every sport and I, i'm really kind of glad that i grew up when i did and not have to go through now where some kids are trying to figure out what what sport is going to be their favorite sport i played everything in, in high school i couldn't wait when one sport when basketball ended volleyball started then track and field went and i just kept you know one thing after another i played baseball in the summertime but i really fell in love with i played hockey for a long time too and i grew i grew five inches one summer and i just couldn't skate as well as i did the year before and i thought this isn't going to work and now i'm a little bit taller at six four maybe i should just play basketball and my dad was a high school basketball coach so i was kind of always around the gym and ball boy little kid at one end shooting and you know everybody's saying hold the basketball when i'm talking and you know and uh but just running out at halftime to shoot and so I kind of grew up around a, uh, around a gym, but um, you know, I I, I think I've, uh, the biggest advantage for me was I played every sport, and and it just you know I think athleticism is a big thing, you know, with so many sports and hand eye coordination. I, you look at guys like Nash, who was so good at rugby and soccer, and it translated over to to basketball. And I'm just glad that I played so many sports as as a young kid. Yeah, we actually um, you don't know this yet, but Ian Hydeley will be one of our you know, guests just before you. So um, we had a good chat with him about all that stuff. And obviously you're kind of on board with the same thing as me. And I was humbled when you messaged me and, you know, said that you kind of remembered who I was, but then mentioned my basketball IQ because I was never known for being the most athletic guy, but I truly believe playing my dad, pushing me to be, you know, play soccer in BC is so popular because you can play it year round, right? Play baseball, a game where you're thinking two plays ahead at all times. Like if the ball goes here, what do we do? There's a runner first, there's this many outs, like, and just being exposed to all that stuff. So it's safe to say that you're, you know, if you're for some reason, have a little young one coming up, you would push them to just be exposed to as many sports as they could. And when did you feel like it was time to kind of buckle in on basketball? I know you moved to Niagara at a younger, you know, and you're like five or six and then, when did it kind of start to come together? It's also really intriguing how many of the guests we've had have had a, a, a dad or a mom or someone who was a coach that they just basically spent their whole life in a gym, which is also super cool. But when did you know that basketball was the the, the game for you? It was probably in high school. Um, you know, I think, you know, all through grade six, seven, uh, eight, I was always playing a bunch of different sports. But then as soon as I got into high school and the the seriousness of the games and, and 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 being on a team at the high school and representing your high school that became a big thing. Um, so I think that's when I kind of got really turned on, and I did other sports to kind of stay busy and stay active. But uh, I would say it wasn't until uh, my I, I was in high school, and then we had it was really interesting because the the high school that I went to. Um, they were redoing the gymnasium, so when we started school. Uh, they said basketball practice starts tomorrow, and I was I went and looked at the gym, and it was like it was nothing. It was empty. There was no baskets, no floor, or anything. I was like, "How are we going to practice?" We practiced for the first two months outside uh, before school started. So we would start practice at seven o'clock outside, and all they would do is fundamentals. We never had a hoop. There was no outdoor hoops. It was a basketball and pivoting and dribbling and passing. 
and pretend shooting against no no basket. And I'll, I'll tell you, it was like, this is no fun at all. But to this day, I still look back and think that maybe was one of the keys with learning how fundamentals of footwork and everything at a, at a, at a young age where we were forced to do it. And again, take advantage of situations that maybe aren't ideal where you don't have gymnasium, you don't have hoops, but still go and practice and get, and get better at something. And I think it paid dividends down the road for me. Yeah. And that's pretty relative to right now, you know, I mean, we're slowly getting to, you know, obviously not where you are, but in, in British Columbia, you know, we've done a good job of keeping kind of COVID on lockdown as best we can. And so we're starting to expand the bubble a bit, but for the last three and a half months, some of these young kids, it's all about being creative and finding a way to just improve. And if you really want it, it'll happen and you don't always need. Yeah. That's interesting. Right. You know, that footwork and all yeah. that stuff. Was that at A.N. Meyer? Hey, through- yeah, that was at A.N. Yeah. Meyer, my first year. Yep, my first year there, grade nine. I'll t- and I'll tell you, I'll t- you, you bring up a good point. If there's a kid who loves basketball who comes out of this COVID and is not a great ball handler, then they don't love basketball. <laughs> Truth. Right? Because, I mean, yes, like, you, yes, you can stay There's one home. thing you can do. There's one thing you can do. And maybe there's more if you have a hoop at home. Um, but there's one thing that you can do, and you have no excuses. So uh, that, that's, that's my big pet peeve. If, if guys come back and they aren't any better at handling the ball, then you don't love the game as much as you think you do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's such a yeah, good point. And just, you know, you can just hear even when you speak, just the passion in your voice and you can hear the competitiveness and just you're kind of you're done with all that. But like you're picturing little 15 year old kids like, come on, man, like, let's go, like, let's get after it. And such an interesting time that we're in. And and then at what point did you realize like, okay, you know what? I really want to go to Simon Fraser. You know, I want to make the national team and, and the Olympics are for me. And what were your high school years like in grade 11 and 12? Did you, I'm not sure if you played grade 13 or um, if that was a thing, but like, how were your teams then? And what were the bonds that you formed and all that stuff? Like anything that you want to throw at us? Yeah. Well, still, still to this day, some of my best friends are my high school teammates. And um, I, I was very, uh, you know, in, in the 10th grade, I played. So in, in Ontario, they had midget, junior, senior. And I, as a young kid with my dad being a coach, it was like every Friday night. It's kind of like it was kind of like hockey night in Canada was Saturday. But Friday night was high school basketball, very similar to the way it is in the States. And uh, there were three games. There was a game at there was a game at six, seven thirty and nine. It was midget, junior, senior. And you played against the same school, three different levels. So as a midget in grade nine, uh, we had a lot of success and we were pretty darn good. Uh, the next year I played junior and at the end of the year, I got called up to the senior team to go on a couple of tournaments. So at that point, I knew when I was in grade 10, I was playing with the senior team that I had a chance to be uh, pretty good. And then the next year, it kind of just took off for me. So grade 11, 12 and 13 um, were years where we went to the all Ontario championships uh, uh, each of those, we never won it, but we got, we got there for a school like ours out of Niagara Falls. That was a big thing, but you know, the, the good teams, good players. Uh, I remember my high school, uh, basketball team, the starting five, all five guys got scholarships, but they, all, they got them all in different sports. And we had a guy that got a football scholarship to Simon Fraser. He went there when I went there, uh, we had, uh, myself. Uh, we had a guy that got a golf scholarship, another guy got a track and field scholarship. So, uh, and another guy went somewhere to play volleyball. And th- so our, our, you know, obviously we had a bunch of guys that were just really good athletes and really good guys to hang around with. So, but it was, it was when I was in the 11th grade, I, I, I traveled across the river to Niagara Falls, New York, 
and I saw the Canadian national team play. And uh, they played against Niagara University, and it was it was part of the preparations for the 1976 Olympics. Um, so they were touring and playing NCAA schools. And uh, when I went to that game, I saw the Canadian team play. It was just something about that game that, uh, you know, we were uh, the Canadian group that had traveled across the river. There was a small, it was a small group of us. Uh, but at the end of the game, they played the Canadian national anthem. And when I saw the players stand there and I heard our national anthem being played in the United States, while 10,000 students try to file out of the building so they could get you know ready for their classes the next day there was just a sense of pride that this is our anthem they played it because they won the game it was a great game Canada I think won by one point and that, that just changed me right there I was like oh I saw something and I said that's what I want to do and you know there's a lot of things that branch from that uh, um you know Jack Don he was the coach of that team and I just I just made it a point that's what my goal is and you know the next day I went back to high school and you know, I had the program with me and I and I, I carried it around and I showed it to my teachers and my coaches. And I said, I saw this game last night. It was unbelievable. Canada won. And, you know, the, nobody even knew about it. Basketball wasn't big. And, you know, I was just like, they were like, oh, well, yeah. And I was like, I'm going to go to Simon Fraser. And they were like, why, why would you say that? And I said, because the, Simon Fraser had three guys that were on that team. And I said, that's one thing I noticed looking at the program. I said, you know, Billy Robinson and it's on this team and all these guys. They're they're at Simon Fraser. Simon Fraser must be doing something right. So for the next two years, I just I, it was in my mind. I'm going to Simon Fraser. When Stan Thurston came to recruit me, I said mm-hmm. uh, he walked in the door and and I said uh, I'm coming. And he said, Well, I haven't even kind of pitched you yet or your family. And I said, No, I'm coming. He goes, Well, there's a lot of schools. He was almost talking me out of it. He goes, There's a lot of schools that want to talk to you. I said, No. And my dad was like, Well, show him the program. And I showed him the program because I had it at my nightstand. And I was a firm believer that you put things where you can see them all the time as reminders of what you want to do and what you want to become. And I kept that, and I looked at that every night before I went to bed. And I asked myself, what did I do today to help me get there? And, uh, you know, so I went up and got the program. And it, but it's a couple of years later now, it's tattered. But I showed it to him, and he said, okay. And, and that's how I ended up at Simon Fraser. That's awesome. Like, I just, I love the fact, too, like I try to tell, especially the kids that we coach, too, is like, you don't need... I mean, yeah, we all have these NBA heroes, but like there's heroes in our backyard, right? Like yeah, Canadian national team in 1976 is who you're looking up to. And yeah, that's an elite level of basketball without question. I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm just saying like mm-hmm. the, 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 like I remember going and watch Steinfeld at the dome, at the Agrodome, right? Like ripping down rebounds yep. for some school in the middle of nowhere in the Valley and like getting 30 rebounds a game and going nuts. And I'm like, wow, I want to be like that guy, right? Like, I don't want to be, I mean, I'd love to be Magic Johnson, but I'm not a 6'9 point guard. And, you know, for you to go and experience that and hang on to that program, like, that's just so cool. So tell me, like, this is where I I love, I want to to spend some time chatting about, um, you know, Stan Sturgeon in your life because, you know, I grew up in Coquitlam. I went to SFU basketball camp every summer and Stan was, he wasn't a coach that would just like, he wasn't a coach that would just have, you know, the, the athletes run the camp and someone else would come in like he was present and he was there. And he was mm-hmm. just, uh, he was someone that I started to look up to. And like, his like, I remember his like curly Afro and like just being such a very nice, you know, just welcoming person would try to interact with as many people as you could. And at that point, you know, like you say, like, I'm not far off from you in terms of in, 
in those days, like there was no internet. So like I would go to SFU games, Stan Stewartson was kind of like a hero and the players were kind of like heroes. So, you know, talk about your relationship with Stan. And, and then obviously I would love to spend a little time talking about our greatest Canadian hero, Terry Fox, but what, what did Stan Mm -hmm. mean for you and, and what he did for you as a, as a coach and a mentor and the conversations that you had that kind of turned you and just really got you going. Yeah, it, it, it was a, a, an unbelievable relationship that I had with Stan. And, and he only coached me for two years because uh, he got out of coaching. But for those two years, I mean, I'd never seen that type of an intensity in anybody. And, you know, everybody who had played for Stan, whether it was lacrosse or whether, you know, it talked about him playing, there was an intensity. And I, I, I needed that. And, and that's what helped me so much is that I remember, I mean, here's a skinny little kid from Niagara Falls and I'm going out there and I, I went through this, the training program that Alex McKechnie and Stan put us through. And it was like two weeks and they, 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 they even built it up as it's going to be the toughest two weeks of your life. And you're going to do commando crawls uh, up the side bank, up to the gymnasium. And you're going to, you know, run down the mountain and you're going to piggyback somebody back up the mountain. And he had all these crazy things and to, to, to make us physically tough. But there was a mental toughness that he did too. I'm, I'll, I'll never forget the first game I played. We were playing Montana Tech on the road, and some kid tried to intimidate me a little bit. A senior came over and he put his foot right in front of our bench. He he stepped on my foot and just stood there. And then he looked at me like, "What are you going to do about it?" And before I could say anything, Stan was right there and leaning over and pointing in this guy's face with his finger like an inch away from his face. And he said, you know what you want to do? You want to try this guy. You want to try this guy because he's f***ing nuts and he'll kick the out of you. And I was like, what, what, are you, what, are you, what do you mean? <laughs> this guy's bigger than me. And the guy, the guy looked at me and I, I'm staring back at him. And now the guy thinks I'm nuts. And the guy takes his foot off mine. And I was just like. Hey, I wasn't the biggest, toughest guy, but I learned that you can fool people. And Stan got me to fool people uh, as far as toughness and getting through things. And then when you, there's a, there's this old saying that uh, you fake it until you make it. And then I believed that I was tough and that I would stand up for myself like that and that people would do that. And I just went, I just got better because of Stan and, and, and that. But, it, you know, our relationship goes way beyond that. Even later on, uh, my brother played junior A hockey for the New Westminster Bruins, and he built it at Stan's house. And uh, his, I, I, I now still go to garage sales, which Stan would do. Stan would – we all lived in his house, and he, he and I bought a house together. He, he was like, I'm going to teach you how to flip a house. If you can scrape up $5,000, well, I couldn't scrape up. He goes, get a homeowner's grant. Get your first homeowner's grant. And and we bought this piece of junk, and we turned it into a huge profit. And that's how I started getting into real estate. And and he led me he led me in that way as well. So uh, our relationship goes way beyond the basketball court and um, how to flip houses, how to fix houses, how to do different things. And uh, he he was a huge part of my life, and 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 if you want me to lead right into the Terry Fox thing, because you know I moved I moved from Niagara Falls to to go to school at Simon Fraser, and I thought I was ready and everything, and I, I was homesick. I got there a week early, and I didn't realize nobody else was going a week early. So I sat in an empty room for a week, yeah. homesick, thinking I don't see a light here. I don't see Christmas time. I don't see when I'm going to get home again. This is no fun. There's no other teammates here. And I was like, man, I, I felt like sick to my stomach. So I went up to talk to Stan, and I was going up there to talk about being homesick. 
and Terry Fox was sitting in his office the day that I went up there and I, I looked in and, and they were like, Oh no, no, come on in, come on in. And the year before is when Terry was, had, was playing junior varsity basketball and had fallen and hurt his knee and they weren't sure, you know, what the injury was. And then they found out that it wasn't even really an injury as much as it was, it was cancer and that he had to have his leg removed. So here he is sitting there with, with, with one leg and you know, he, he saw me and he thought, Oh, let this guy talk. But that was the first day I met him. And I said to Stan, I said, man, I feel really bad because I, I know the story, but I just didn't know what to say. And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. He's going to be our like our manager. He's going to tape ankles. He still wants to be part of the team. And, and that. so I was like, oh, okay, great. And then I remember as I got over, you know, and now now I see Terry Fox there. I'm not going to tell the head coach I, I'm homesick. I want to go home. So I just kind of sucked it up and, and got through it. But then I saw Terry on a pretty regular basis every day and uh, was just amazed because he would tell us that you know, he was going to run, run across uh, the country and he had to stop the suffering that he'd seen in the cancer wards. And I was just like, uh, yeah, okay. I like, yeah, it's great to have these dreams and stuff like that. And, uh, I was just, you know, I'll go along with this Terry, as long as you want to. And then, you know, I, I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try to play basketball in the Olympics. And, and then I would be taking the bus, uh, up the mountain to go get some shots up or to lift weights. And I'd see him wheeling his wheelchair up the mountain. And then he'd get up there and he'd come into the gym and he'd shoot a little bit. Then he'd go lift weights. And I was like, okay, so this guy said he was going to do something. He's doing a lot more than I am right now. This is crazy. And it just raised my level. Um, and then I would talk to him all the time. He said, yeah, I have to, I have to build the upper body because I have to swing the prosthetic leg in front of me one step every time. So I have to have a stronger upper body. So that's why I got to lift. And the wheeling up the mountain helps. And he goes, you can't stop because you, you go backwards and you go backwards. You got to make up that ground. So it's mentally tough too. And I was just like, all right, now I'm starting to believe this guy because he, he just had this, this drive and he was on a plan and his plan was better than mine. And I had my goals and it just really taught me that, you know, you better be disciplined to, to what your plan is if you want to achieve any of this. Like to think about SFU Hill. <laughs> Yeah, wheeling up like I know. I, a no, friend no. of mine, a, a colleague of mine, last week actually on Wednesday, we did the hike all the way around. It was like eleven kilometers, and we did the stairs up all the way to Horizons and back down, and it was good. And my hammies were burning for a couple of days. I'm like, but you're gonna wheel a wheelchair up there? Like that's just a whole different level of kind of mental toughness that a lot of us don't really have. Yeah, it was it, it was crazy. And, you know, and then the other things that he had, he had dances all the time and people weren't very supportive at the beginning. And we were like, man, he's losing money. He had to pay for the band and uh, everything. And we were there because we were teammates and stuff like that. Then the next week, uh, you know, he lost more money. We're like, oh, man, Terry, you, you got to are you going to stop this? He goes, no, no, no. They'll start catching on. By the end of the semester, he was just as persistent with the run as he was with how he was going to fundraise. And, and it just kept taking off and he got more and more people coming and finally raised raised money to help you know support the 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 run across the country just so stubborn in in a good way right like i think we think of stubbornness as a bad thing and we talk about my three and a half year old being stubborn but we we think it's going to pay off eventually and just terry just having that ability and like for me he's my number one hero and and someone i admire yeah. and obviously you know donnie van os just you know Right. making us we didn't have a choice other than to know his story and and kind of emulate who he was and try to represent terry every time he, we stepped on the floor right so i think yeah. what an honor and like what a privilege for you everything that you've had in your life that you've worked hard for and gotten to but to be able to actually have a relationship with terry fox like that must just be so special i, I yeah. i'm honestly like well, yeah you're an nba coach but i for me like wow a 
the yeah, relationship no. with Terry Fox is wow. I, I don't have words for it. No, Aaron, I'll tell you, to be honest, it's, it took, for me, it's, it's crazy when you think that two of the greatest Canadians ever, and, and I, are, are Terry Fox and Steve Nash, and I've been able to have a relationship with both of them. It, it's kind of like I, I honestly feel so, so lucky and so grateful that those guys were able to be in my life in any, in any way. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you know, Steve going to the Olympics and, and being in the, in the hall of fame and, and Terry for what he's done. And it just to have those guys be, to be, you know, friends, be friends with those guys as, uh, as well as colleagues. It, it, it's, uh, it's amazing. I honestly pinch myself and, and think of how lucky I am. Yeah. It's funny. Like I, I created a leadership class at our school, a grade 12 for grade 12s. And I, for me, and I I'd like to hear your thoughts I just always say to them, you know, there's a whole bunch of things about leadership and there's, you know, different words and theories and books. But for me, it just comes down to relationships, right? And you talked about that with Terry, like you had a relationship with him and you went out of your way to like get to know him and chat with him. And like, obviously you and Steve had a connection. Steve's had how many coaches across his entire life, but Mm -hmm. you know, the ability to be able to control and have a relationship with someone and be vulnerable is like so huge. Um, what are your thoughts about leadership? Yeah. Like, what do you think a true leader is and, and, and what are the qualities that those people need? Well, I think you, you touched on it right there. I mean, that, how you, your relationship with people and, and how you can, uh, get the most out of them so that they will respect you for that. And, and different people have different ways of leading. I mean, there's guys that are tough asses and there's guys that are gonna put their arm around you. And I don't know which one I am. Uh, I, because I think that the, the, the truest part of it is you got to just be real because these guys are smart. They don't get to where they are. They don't get to the level that they're at without being extremely intelligent, whether it's a street intelligence or an academic intelligence. And it, to be that smart, if you try to fool them and be something that you're not genuinely, they mm-hmm. read that and then they lose the respect. And, and so I think the biggest thing is just be genuine who you are. Um, I'm a, I, I talked to uh, Kenny Atkinson, who, who got fired by the Brooklyn Nets this year. And uh, his big thing was, like, I, I, I got so caught up in the X's and O's that I, that I lost the players. And he said, it's all about the players. You can be, you, you don't need, the X's and O's. And, and, and as coaches, we all strive for the great plays and the great techniques and everything like that. But it's, not, it's about how do you motivate these guys to be the best that they can be. And, and, you know, there's that saying in basketball, it's not the X's and O's, it's the Jimmy's and Joe's. And you better know how to deal with, the, with those guys. Um, and when you have a team and 12 of them, you're dealing with 12 different personalities. So that's the challenge. Um, you know, Greg Popovich is a great leader because of, you know, his, his ability. I got the chance in 2010 to work with Mike Krzyzewski and, um, at the World Championships for the United States. And when we went to that... Uh, oh, we're going to get there. Don't worry about that. When we when 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 I first went there, I brought this notepad and I was like, you know, full of basketball courts. I'm going to figure out all this stuff that Coach K does. Man, I was so unimpressed with what he did X's and O's wise, but I was blown away by the way he interacted with the players and the way that he talked to the team and motivated the team. And I just I, from that point on, I, I became a Duke fan 
And I, I just love what he, what he did and who, and what he stands for. He, cause he's just got a great way with people and it just proved more what I've already said. It's not always the X's and O's. It's how you deal with the, with the, with the people. Love that answer. Thank you. And, and I think that there's a perception and I want to keep going, but that I want to touch on this. There's a perception out there that may be like, Oh, well, they're NBA players. And I know I've said it or thought it myself, like, Oh, the coaches mm-hmm. don't even coach. They just like, you know, it's like managing egos and that's it. And so like you're saying that genuinely the reason that you stayed in this still is the relationships and, and, and having, you know, the workouts with the guys and getting to know them on a different level. And so, cause I think maybe sometimes there's this perception that because it's pro sport that people show up, they do their thing and they leave and there's not a lot of culture like there would be at Simon Fraser or St. Thomas more yeah. or wherever, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's a good point. The, the national team is, is, you know, there's a big debate that a lot of coaches have. What, what's it like coaching the national team versus coaching the NBA? And I always said one is a passion and one is a profession. And the NBA is a profession. I mean, it's your job and, and you do it. But it doesn't mean you can't still love what you do. Um, and everybody asks me all the time, what's it like to coach NBA guys? How, how do you coach those guys? How do you? Well, you know what? They're exactly like you and I. And, and if you take and you went in and you just grabbed 12 people in the general population and put them in a room, it's pretty much what you're going to have with an NBA team. You're going to have two guys that are super cheap. You're going to have two guys that are super generous. You're going to have two guys that are moody. You're going to have two guys that are always happy. Um, it, it, you just get it, 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 there's everything. And, and I think I've learned that. It, you know, you have this expectation that. Uh, these guys are different uh, or they want to be treated different. And that was Vince's, you know, when I coached Vince Carter early uh, in his career in Toronto and I was an assistant coach and he was really upset that he got treated differently than the other guys. And he got treated differently because he was a superstar. The superstars back then, the ones that I know, don't want to be treated different. Dame Lillard wants to be called out as much in a, in a huddle or a halftime speech as he wants you to call out the other guys who aren't doing their job. The, I think that's the big thing is that the one thing that unites them, they can be all different types of people. They can be quiet. They can be loud. They can be abrasive. They can be whatever. The one thing that they all are is competitive. And how you can touch that competitive spirit with each guy is going to determine how good a coach you are. Because they're looking for the win. They're looking for their next job. And if you can touch them and say, I'm going to help you, then they are going to listen and respect you. I'm just. I just had to pause there because that's just like I and for me, Jay, like when I started coaching um, at STM and I know I told you offline here before we started, you know, I've been at St. Thomas for 16 years, probably makes you feel old, but makes me feel old as well. And how I think about how I was then and how I'm like now we're doing I'm doing so many more things, just one on one culture based checking with our guys, Mm -hmm. conversations with them. How are you? How's your life? letting them know that I care about them because I don't know when it actually hit me, but just realizing like, it doesn't really matter what the frick we run on the court. If these guys aren't all together and don't care about each other and don't care about me. And obviously the coach and player relationship is very different. It's a different sort of thing. But if we don't have that, there's, we're not going to have any success, you know? And I think when you're young and you're full of piss and vinegar and uh, you know, you just focus on winning you don't really understand that. And then as you grow, you realize, wow, it's, there's so much more to it than really what you're, how you're going to guard the ball screen. Yeah, for sure. And, 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 you know, when you look back and you, 
I, I can't remember a lot of a lot of scores uh, of games or wins or losses and stuff unless it was huge, monumental. But I remember the the players and the locker rooms and the relationships because you're with those guys for so long. And I think that's a big thing. You know, when you're a national team, you you have breakfast with them, you have lunch with them, you practice with them, and then you have a roommate all the time. And it's just it's a different vibe, and that's why. You know, the, that Olympic team in 2000 was so exciting and so fun. Those guys today, to this day, they're family. And it has to do with the relationships that we had, not not the success that we had on the basketball court. For sure. And I remember being in Brandon, watching that, and I can't wait to get into that a little bit. Thank you so much for all the great, like, experience and stories and great stuff. You Obviously, there's a, there's a path for you and your life and your story. And there's some people along your way that kind of just plop in that – mentor and kind of you know you can see and 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 tell um talk a little bit about jack donahue and what that was like obviously you know you were a captain for you know seven eight years on the national team it was a different kind of national team back then in terms of you know your world university games just different things and what was jack like and and how did he you know you talked a little bit about stan you talked about your high school experience your dad how does jack mold you and kind of and um mentor you well, I, I think, you know, as a coach, you have a little little pieces of everybody who coached you. But Jack coached me for longer than anybody. I mean, I was on the national team for 11 years. And, and you mentioned it. We, we did everything. We did the Pan American Games. We did the Olympic Games. We did the World Championships. We did the World Student Games. We did exhibition games. Like, when you got together with the national team, it, it started in, in June, and it ended at the end of August. So it was three months. And... It, you know, when you're with people that long, uh, you just tend to learn more. Uh, three practices a day at times, tough travel. Uh, that that experience with Jack was was something that you know you could never, never replace, and, ne- and never, never ever learn if you're not on the national team. And you mentioned me being you know the captain for for seven of those years, but. For the first two years on the national team, I was the I was the, the I used to I, I used to send postcards home that said the beds are sagging, the food is horrible. I'm the thirteenth man on a twelve man team, but I'm having the time of my life, and because I, that's who I was. I, I made I made the national team. Um, it, it's an interesting story. Uh, I tried out and I had a sprained ankle and. Uh, I, I was horrible. It was an open tryout. And I went to this open tryout and I, I just like, I, I was horrible. And I went downstairs and uh, Don McCray, who was one of the coaches, happened to be going through the locker room. And again, talk about luck and fate or whatever. And he said, um, you know, a tough, tough day for you out there. I said, yeah, no, no worries. And then I, I was cutting the tape off my ankle. And, and as I did, uh, it, it, the, the tape came off and my ankle kind of just exploded out of it. And, and he goes, whoa, you got to get that looked at. And I said, oh, no, I did it. I did it yesterday. He goes, do you play today like that? And I said, yeah. So and then I, then I went home. And then a year later, I get an invite back to the national team. And Jack said, uh, you know, when I first saw you last year, you were absolutely horrible. You were, you were like one of the worst guys. And I was like, what's all this hype about? This guy is supposed to be pretty good. And I said, oh. He goes, then I found out that you had an ankle, bad ankle injury. I said, oh, yeah, coach, it was really bad. And he says, is it okay now? I said, oh, yeah, it's had a year to recover or whatever. And he goes, okay. He says, well, the reason I invited you back is because you never limped. And I was like, pardon? He goes, no, you never limped. It wasn't like, he said, everybody else who would have had an ankle like that would have tried to show us. 
that they have an injury and that maybe they're not playing well because of that. He goes, but when you never limped, I thought, we got to invite that kid back. So good luck at the tryout. And I was just like, oh, okay. And and then sure enough, I and again, I had another bad tryout. So I'm, now I'm old for two, but uh, I, I, I was fortunate. And to this day, Aaron, I, this is how I still pick my teams because uh, I was a bad player at that tryout. But Jack said, the top 10 guys are the guys that will start and the guys that will be their backups. Number 11 and number 12 weren't the 11th and 12th best players here. Those guys are guys that if they practice hard, because they're never going to get in, if they practice as hard as they did at this tryout, if they practice that way, they're going to make the 10 guys that are going to play better. So that's how we picked this team. And sure enough, I was the 12th man because of how hard I played, not because of how good I was. And then I was with the national team and all those practices, playing against these great players every single day. I knew what my job was, but I got better uh, from being in that role. And that's how I ended up becoming a starter and, uh, and, and turning it into a, into a positive when maybe uh, uh, some coaches would have said, he's not in the top 12, let's get him out of here. Yeah, and like, I mean, who wouldn't want to play for a guy who's that open and honest too, right? And then you know right away, like, so you make it and then the, everybody in the room knows, all right, this is a guy that just doesn't care about winning. He's also wanted to create a culture so we can win. And then that opportunity was there for you to get there. And that's amazing, amazing stuff. Who, you know, for, there's some, definitely some enthusiasts, you know, out of the uh, 81 listeners we have, but uh, who are some of the people on those teams that were like the, the kind of the best players you've seen and had the opportunity to play with? We'll talk a little bit about the World University Games in a sec, but you're on that team as the 12th man. What's your mentality? Are you like, I'm just going to go after it every day. I got nothing to lose. Or you were oh, like, yeah. I see myself, I see myself there and I'm going to make sure I get there. Or was it a bit of both? A little bit of both, but uh, you know, I, I honestly didn't know if I could ever get to be as good as, you know, like the Martin Rileys and the Doc Ryan's and the Jimmy Zoot. Uh, these guys are guys that I, I watched play in the '76 Olympics. A, a, lot, a lot of them, and I, Jamie Russell and John Cassidy. I'm I'm like looking at these guys, going, "Holy smokes!" I watched these guys in the Olympics, and that was my dream. And now I'm now I'm in a, in a room with them. It was a little bit surreal. Billy Robinson was one of the guys who. Uh, who was on that team and he was a Simon Fraser alum. Yeah. But the, you know, when you see, when you see all these guys, I, I knew what my role was. So I was like, how can I be the best teammate possible? And I, and I was, I would, I would like re, Hey, I'm not going to play tonight, but you need to get some shots up. So I, 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 I pass and we do shoot arounds and I'd be just a passer. And then they would be doing interviews or getting ice or treatment. And I'd be running lengths of the court. And that was my whole thing was, I'm going to be ready, and I want to show you guys how hard I'm working. And uh, I remember Jack used to have me keep stats, and uh, I still to this day keep the same stats as an NBA assistant. I keep track of an offense, you know, high post. Well, we score a little check mark. We didn't we'll, we'll put an X beside it. We score again, I put a check mark, and then you know he 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 he. We couldn't travel with as many people back then as we can now, or as they do now. Uh, so I, I, you know, he'd, he'd look down the bench and he'd go, Triano. And I'd go, yes, yeah. And I'd take off my sweats and he'd go, no, no, no. How are we doing in high post? And I'd say, oh, we're, <laughs> we're three for four. He goes, okay, sit down. And he'd sit down and, and, and he'd yell, stay with high post. And we, they'd run high post again. And, and that was my job. And, but, you know, I kept saying over, over that time, I said, I kept saying, because they changed the 11th man every trip that we, they went on. They, they changed oh, the 11th wow. man, the top. Wow. And, 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 they, and they kept me as the 12th. And I was just like, 
hey, coach, any chance I can, you know, move up a little bit eventually? This is two years. And he mm-hmm. goes, no, no, you're, you're doing a great job. He goes, number one, number, number one he goes, you, you keep great stats for me. You help me there. Uh, you're super positive. He goes, I give a guy when he comes off the floor. And, and you're there patting him on the back and giving him a towel. He goes, you rebound for all these guys in the morning when they're trying to get ready. You do extra work. You set a good example that way. So I just love where you are. And I was like, oh, I felt okay. Well, I, I'd really <laughs> like to move up at some point. Um, and it wasn't until the uh, the qualifying tournament, uh, you know, which is was – in 1980, it was 40 years ago now, um, but we're playing and two guys get hurt and he asked me to go in and I was like, just stay with high post coach. It's going well. And he goes, no, you're going in. And um, I had to, I, I, I had to go in and I, I to this day, I, I keep saying, I'm so thankful that I kept stats because I knew every one of our plays because you had to watch to see what we were running and what was working. So not only did I know the plays, I knew what was working well. Um, I'm glad that I did all that extra running and stayed in shape because you can't replace players. And when those two guys were out of the tournament um, with a knee injury and a chest injury, I had to play every minute of every game uh, from that point on. And we just went on a roll. Uh, Leo Routens was a great playmaker at the time. And uh, I just kept running around and I practiced with Leo quite a bit. I knew the plays. I came off the screen and ball hits me in the head and, and, I'm like, what are you doing? And then I was, I was like, hold it. I'm underneath the basket. And if I had my hands up, it would have been the easiest two points ever. So I said, good pass, man, my fault. And then, you know, I just ended up, I ended up, I think, leading Canada in scoring uh, for a guy that wasn't, hadn't played in two years and had strictly come off the bench. Uh, but because of my preparation and with the way I handled sitting on the bench and, you know, that was a big thing because, you know, we were told as soon as we won that tournament that because of the Russians invading Afghanistan, you're not going to get it to go to the Olympics. And I remember thinking, you know, this is to, for me, politics. I, I was just looking at sports. I, I didn't care. I wanted, what was I going to do the next day? But as it settled in, all this time that we had talked about going to the Olympics and representing Canada at the Olympics and we qualified, which is hard to do. Uh, we were told that we weren't going to go to the Olympics. And I, and I remember my meeting with Coach Donahue, and I said to him, he said to me, he goes, I just want to make sure you don't get fat. I said, don't get fat. And I said, I'm the skinniest kid ever. And he goes, no, no, no. I don't mean it, I don't mean in a physical sense. I, 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 I mean it mentally. He said, don't forget how you got to where you are right now. And to me, that's something that I've kind of stuck with me then 40 years ago and it stays with me right now uh whatever job i have whatever i do i want to be the hardest worker and i want to be one of the nicest guys and that's that's what kept me on the national team for a long time and allowed me to play in, in the next two olympics uh he left that meeting with me and had to, and he was almost in tears because he, he said uh you're going to be fine as long as you you know don't forget how you got here he says, but right now I got to go and talk to these other guys who are never going to get a chance to play in the Olympics because it, it just doesn't fit their biological calendar right now. Uh, so I'm, ha- I'm going to have a tough time. And, and to see him go through that, I knew how much it meant for him to be uh, a coach and take guys to the Olympics. And that's what, that was my motivation for 1984 and 1988 and why I played in two more Olympics. Good Lad Clothing is the most unique shopping experience in the Lower Mainland. The owner, Shane Meyer, has worked hard to create a personal experience, offering clothing, specialized coffee, haircuts, and beard trims. Located in Lower Lonsdale at 221 West Esplanade in North Vancouver, seconds from the C-Bus. If you are unable to make it to the store, you can shop online at shopthefoldgroup.com. And oh yeah, 
in-store, if you mention a Hoops Journey, you'll receive 15% off anything store-wide. We want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Parkside Brewery. Located in the heart of Port Moody on Brewers Row, Parkside offers an amazing atmosphere with one of the best summer patios around. If you can't make it to the brewery located at 2731 Murray Street, then hit any government retail store and try the Don Pilsner, the Dusk Pale Ale, or my favorite, the Dreamboat Hazy IPA. A Hoops Journey promises that the beer at Parkside is much, much, much better than the owner, Sam Payne's Streaky Jump Shot. We hope to see you Parkside. Awesome. I got three things to see if I can remember them all. One is we had Scott Morrison on, who I mentioned, coach of the assistant coach with the Celtics, and we were mm-hmm. chatting offline. He had just landed in the bubble, and I just said, you know, how's the room? And he said, well, you know what? It's it's not the, what we're used to, but he said, it, direct quote, Jay, exact same. He said, I'll never forget where I came from, right? And I'm like, yep. okay, yep. yeah. Um, yep. And two, you know, being a high school coach, trying to have the kids just believe and and have them understand like how important it is just to have a jersey to be a part of something bigger than yourself to be the 12th mm-hmm. or 15th guy on a team the things that you're going to learn and it doesn't matter if you play post secondary or not just when you're on that senior team for 2 years you get that opportunity or 3 whatever it is like the things that you're going to take away so just to have that pride and realize like hey there's a bunch of guys that got cut and I didn't, right. and I'm still. So whether you're the 15th man or not, just the learning and the things that can occur. And number three was we had Steve Meg on, who you had the opportunity to coach and work with as oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he tore his ACL, right, and had a really fast-tracked um, surgery. And, you know, you recruited him and got him all the way out to SFU and stuff. And just a great, great human being, an unbelievable player. But one thing he talked about, similar like you, was the year that he was hurt, he took notes on every guy. He went an hour and a half before uh, practice and just played open gym with whoever was in the gym, right? Like, so he did mm-hmm. got his conditioning in there and then used the time that he was hurt and not healthy to play to learn about all the guys that he was going to compete against. So he never really stopped trying to grow. And I think in basketball and in life, that's a huge thing is that growth mindset. And yeah, you took good stats, but you're also learning and growing and you're watching the game and, and constantly trying to challenge yourself. And, you know, like you say, I, I I would die to have some kids on our team that when, you know, the, somebody goes for a water, they're running back and forth, you know, like that's, yeah. those are three like amazing sure. things. Yeah. Great, yeah. I did, great I, stuff. I, I, it's funny because I guess it was, I guess it was me, but I learned it from Jack when you don't pick the 12 best players because you want to pick guys to be part of a team. And before we went to the Olympics in 2000, I, I, we had three guys that we had to cut when we were in Vancouver just before we left. And mm-hmm. The coaches were like, are you okay with all this? And I said, yeah, I can handle it. I can handle it. Because you, you know what? You, like you just talked about, you're taking away somebody's dream. You're taking away somebody's opportunity to be part of a team like that. And it crushes you as a, as a coach. It, it, it just it, it sucks. And um, I cut the first two guys. Then the third guy came in and I said, listen, man, uh, I can't keep you. Listen, you're a hard worker. You're a great guy. Uh, your teammates love you. You practice hard all the time. You play hard all the time when you get a chance. Uh, but And then I just I started thinking of this is me. And I said, you know what? Never mind. I, I, I take it back. I'm not cutting you. And the kid, he looked at me like, 
are you nuts or what? You just cut me. And then you told me now I'm not cut. And I said, yeah, you're not cut. And very few people know this. I went back to where the coaches were. They were all sitting around having a beer and they were like, how'd it go? How'd it go? I said, we have a problem. I said, what? And they said, I didn't, I only, I could only cut two of them. I couldn't cut. And they go, we got three guys. I mean, we got 13 guys. You can only take 12. And I said, do we know that for sure? And I got Johnny Lee on the phone to call Australia because we were going down to Australia. And I said, can we, can we bring an extra player? And, and they were like, oh, no, no, no. The numbers in international basketball go from three to 15. And, you know, it's 12 players. And I was like, well, it's an exhibition game. What if? And they said, well, that person would have to wear a zero or a shirt with no number on it. I said, okay. And I said, but, and then Johnny Lee says to me, he goes, Coach, we, got, we don't have enough flight tickets. And, and Scott Clark, who was one of my assistants, stepped up and he said, uh, he said, Coach, this is for the players. I don't need to go. You're good. You're good. You got the, you got the other coach, Dave Pendergraf, and uh, you're okay. I'll stay back. You find out if this is who who you like because when we go to the Olympics, we're going to n- narrow it down. I was like, oh man, how generous! How generous to do that. Number one. Then we get uh, we're on the airplane to LA. My other assistant coach, Dave Pendergraf, gets a call while we're in the air. He lands and he, he takes his message. He got hired by the Seattle SuperSonics while we were in the air. So he turned around and went on a flight to Seattle. So now it was me, Johnny Lee, and 13 players. And we're, we're, going, we're going to Australia. And I told the guy who was the 13th guy, and I'll tell you his name. His name was Sean Sword. Swordy. And I told him, I said, I said you're going to have to be like sit beside me and help me coach now because this is my first time coaching the national team, and we're going down, down here to play these games. And I... I don't have an assistant with me. And he goes, oh, I gotcha, I gotcha. And Johnny Lee was unbelievable. And Swordsy was unbelievable. But I'll never forget, Swordsy. Well, so we play in Australia. We win a game, and then we lose two. And I lose my mind uh, as a coach. I was just like, who's going to listen to me? Who's going to do what I want them to do? And the ha- bunch of hands went up. I said, okay, good. You, 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 and you. You're starting tomorrow in our final game against Australia. And I was just like. Man, okay. And so I leave the meeting and I said to Johnny Lee, I said, Johnny, who did I say was starting? And he goes, Coach, you don't want to know. And I said, Well, he goes, because all the guys who hadn't played are the guys that would, would say that I'll listen to you, Coach, and they all put their hands up. And, and Swordsy was one of them. And he had hardly played at all. But we beat Australia in, in Sydney, where the Olympic Games were going to be played, starting Jordy McTavish, Sean Swords. Andrew Mavis, we had all these guys that were just like, I'll play, I'll do, I'll do what you want, coach. And they did it. I'll never forget the first possession. The ball changed sides of the floor like five times, and we hit a, an open three. And then the next time down, it was like nine nothing. But the big, my, my point in all this, at the end of that game, Sean Swords, who had not played at all, had nine points, nine rebounds, and nine assists. I, and I remember it to this day because he was one away from a triple-double in every category. And I just said, here's a guy who didn't bitch. He sat beside me the whole time. I didn't play him. I cut him, and then I told him he's not on the team, so his head's got to be spinning. But when it came down to playing a game, he was ready. So I came back, and I said, listen, guys, I know to the coaches, I said, I know – that our first guy is going to be Steve Nash on the team, and our 12th man is going to be Sean Sorge. Help me find out who the other 10 are. And that's how we picked the team. Awesome. And what does Swordsy do now? Head coach of a program, right? Like Head, head coach, yeah. 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 And, and, and the heart and soul of that team, yes. I think I actually remember because I was 
I met up with the guys that night in Vancouver and uh, some of them were looking a little happier than others, but so I kind of pick and chose who I was going to uh, <laughs> yeah. chat with. But yeah, like you say, it doesn't get any easier, right? Even cutting 16 year old kids or working at the national team yeah. level. It's like, it's still just an awful thing because you just care about people, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Amazing story. This is so good. So many great stories. I knew you, your storytelling is so great. Um, we haven't even touched on kind of coaching for you yet in terms of, um, how you've transitioned to that. I, I have a question for you though, how, and ho- hopefully it's not a sore spot or anything, but like, how does being drafted in, was it 81? Yeah. 1981. Yep. Yeah. So how does that work at that time? Because you're still playing and what, you know, you went to a couple training camps, the jazz and the Lakers, but how does all that work? I, that, that I just, well, I've never really well, known how then, that. Yeah. B- back then, I mean, I, I had just come out of Simon Fraser. So I graduated from Simon Fraser and uh, I was with the national team. And I honestly, back then it was like the NBA was just, it it just kind of happened. It wasn't like it is now. It wasn't like, it wasn't that it was, it was, it was exciting if you were a fan, but it wasn't even really on TV on a regular basis all the time. The draft wasn't covered. Like, and I remember going to practice and Jack Donahue said to me, he goes, uh, you, you might get drafted today. And I said, really, why? He goes, uh, the NBA draft. And he goes, I've had two or three teams. Uh, no, I've reached out to two or three teams and kind of given them your name. And I said, oh, cool. And then sure enough, the day goes on. And then that night, somebody gives me a call. Um, and there's no text, no, no social media. So you find out different ways. But they, I get a, they said, uh, yeah, you got drafted by the Los Angeles Lakers in the eighth round. I was like, wow, okay, that's that's pretty cool. I don't know what happens next or whatever. And he goes, oh, they'll probably reach out in the next couple of days. And then Jack Donahue said, you know, he says that's really interesting because that's not one of the teams that I talk to. So people must know about about you. And there was a, actually a scout that covered uh, the Pacific Northwest and had seen me at Simon Fraser. So I got, you know, I ended up getting drafted, and you know, then I played football for a year, and then I got drafted in the same year in football. So it was it was kind of it was all crazy, and the two camps were exactly at the at exactly the same time. So, but uh, the interesting part with the Lakers was that you go to summer league, and you play in the summer league, and then you see if you can make it to main camp. And you know, at summer league, they were all they were all just like, "There's no chance. There's no chance." They got 12 guaranteed contracts. They just won the NBA championship. Uh, with Magic Johnson and uh, Jabbar and everybody, and I'm like, oh, oh, okay, whatever. And you know, so I go through the training camp and everything. But the head coach is the assistant coach, just similar to the way it is now in summer league. The head coach is the assistant coach, and the assistant coach for the Los Angeles Lakers at that time was Pat Riley. So Pat Riley was my summer league coach when I was with the Los Angeles Lakers. So that's crazy, is bananas. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. And how was he? Fiery, intense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was he was like super intense. And, you know, he was just a young guy at the time. But, uh, you know, you could tell that he he was going to be head coach. And she, sure enough, he was within a, within a year after that. So um, mm-hmm. but they won. They had won with Paul Westhead being the head coach and Pat Riley was his uh, fiery assistant. And he ended up taking over. That's right. That's crazy. Let's talk a little bit about. 1983 the world university games you know you look at that roster of the guys that you and i know you've probably talked a lot about this in your life but this is an iconic moment i think for canada basketball when you know the wheels i mean as you mentioned before we've made olympics before but like to be able to compete with the u.s on that stage and you look at things like charles barkley carl malone and pinkney kevin willis jay humphreys johnny dawkins right Mm -hmm. just was that I mean, you've had so many moments in basketball, but that has to be 
up there and then being able yeah. to beat Yugoslavia in the final for sure. And, uh, hashtag Triano with 29, but, um, like to be able to knock off the U S like that, just talk about the emotions and how that felt. It must've been so amazing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was incredible. The, 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 the big thing was, I mean, obviously every time we played, we're looking, we're looking South and we're thinking, you know, the USA is the best team. We got to beat the USA. And what a lot of people don't know, and you know, 83 happened in Edmonton. It was part of the university games and it was televised, but you know, playing on the national team was such a secret for so many years. In 1981 at the world university games in Romania, we beat the United States and nobody knew about it. In 1982, at the World's Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee, we beat the United States, but nobody mm. even knew about no, nobody knew about it. So in 1983, now those teams weren't as powerful as this team in 1983. It was just like the you know there it was the U.S. It was still the U.S. But in 1983, when you put Charles Barkley and Carl Malone, they, you know they were going. They were there. They were there to win it. And I keep saying that it was probably a good thing that we didn't play them in the finals and that we played them in the semifinals and they might've been looking past us um, to the gold medal and thinking how, you know, we got to get out of Edmonton, but let's win the gold first. Uh, oh, Canada's in our way, but yeah, we can beat Canada. And uh, mm-hmm. we, we just played a perfect game. We were, we were so locked in and ball movement and everything. We just, had, we just had one of the, one of the, one of the great games. And then the crowd in that place was unbelievable. <clears throat> it was one of the first times that I'd, I was introduced with, uh, to uh, sports psychology. And we had a sports psychologist, Cal Botterill, who was with us. And he, he, he was really, really good at bringing the team together. We had this song that we all listened to by the Commodores, Sail On. It was just like Sail On. So something would go wrong and he'd, he'd crank the music. Sail On down the line. He, there was a lot of time spent in rooms. I, I think that's what people don't understand. You, you know, with the national team, you're in the room a lot. So you visualize and that. And he taught us how to visualize. And uh, I'll never forget not being able to sleep because I knew we were playing the U.S. and I'm nervous and this is going to be a big game for us. And you know, the place is going to be packed. There's going to be 10,000 people there. It's, this is rare for us to play uh, with so many people. And Miracle on Ice had happened three years earlier. And I'm, I'm having this dream the night before, and I see a sign that says Miracle on Wood. And I thought, oh, that's, that's really cool. Anyway, I forget all about it that I've seen this. And we're marching out to the opening ceremonies and both teams go through the middle and then they, they, they turn and then they go across the free throw line. As we turn in front of the front row of spectators, some guy reaches out in front and he's holding up a sign that says miracle on wood. And I was just like, Holy shit, I saw this last night in my dream. This is crazy. And Cal had taught us all this positive thinking and that. So you see yourself making shots, you see yourself being successful. And that's exactly what happened from that point on. I just kept following that dream where we were successful. And I remember even picking up and holding up Coach Donahue. And I'd seen that in my dream as well. I had visualized all of this happening before it actually happened. So it's kind of it's kind of surreal for as great a basketball moment as it was, it was kind of like a mental moment too that just went, This is this really happened. And I saw it before it happened. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. I, yeah, never really got exposed to the kind of the, that side of it either until I worked with um, the provincial team my first year and we really dug into sports psychology and like what a powerful thing and understanding that there's so much more to the elements of the game. And I mean, what a phenomenal experience that must have been. And yeah, uh, you know, you and can... I'll, say, I'll, I'll say this to this day, 
I think that this is the one thing that's missing in the NBA. There's a, like there's a lot of guys that are dealing with different issues mentally, and mm-hmm. um, I really believe that it's the next thing in the NBA that needs to be tapped um, because you know we all run the same plays, all guys practice the same, they shoot the same, or whatever. I think the the, the team the team that figures it out mentally and that's what's happening in orlando right now through this bubble it's going to be the team that handles the bubble the best is going to be the team that wins and i really believe sports psychology is going to be a big big part of basketball moving moving forward wow good stuff love it um so you start to kind of you know move forward you play against some guy in 1984 named michael jordan and you play a little bit of pro and i don't want to like fast forward through those moments so if there's some if you got a cool story about playing against MJ, then that's that's awesome. But at what point? I'm just curious. At what point do you realize, or are you processing like, hey, I, f- I feel like maybe I want to be a coach one day? Is it something that you felt even from just spending time with your dad um, and kind of felt that mojo and moved into it, or was it not till you were in SFU, kind of doing your practicum and like when did you realize, hey, I really want to get into this craft and see what I can do with it? Well, I got I got to go back to Stan again. We talked about him, you know. I, I, after the '84 Olympics, I was really struggling. Um, you know, we finished fourth, one spot out of a medal, and uh, I couldn't see four more years down the road. And I was in Niagara Falls, and I'd be going out and drinking, and I was just in a bad spot. Um, you know, it's something that Olympic athletes go through. You wake up every day with a purpose, and all of a sudden, it's gone at the end of at the end. And I was just like, what am I going to do? And Stan kind of said, hey, I need you to come back. And this is all kind of like a, a plan that he had created. He goes, I need you to come back for the alumni game. And I don't even remember having an alumni game when I was a player. And he goes, we're going to have an alumni game. So I need you to come back out here. And I said, okay. And so I end up going out there. I was doing nothing else. And I, I, I come out there and he's got uh, well, the alumni game is Friday, but we've got lunch with a guy from Teachers College here, you know, the professional, the PDP program. And I said, oh, okay. And he goes, so they, they, boom, without me even knowing it, he had me enrolled in professional development. I met with the guy and they took, is this something you want to do? And I said, sure. So I started in January after not knowing. And then I was at Simon Fraser and I was helping Stan coach and I got a little bit of the coaching bug, but then I still wanted to play. I, I, I still want to play. So I kind of, geared more towards playing and i left i left the coaching for a while and stan was like come back whenever you want and um that's what i did in 1988 when the olympics were over i, I went back and uh went back to simon and, and started helping him coach again and um that's kind of where i got it. It, it i would say more than anything Aaron, it's love of the game if i can't play it i still want to be involved in it somehow um so i'm going to come back and i'm going to learn how to be a coach and fortunately stan was a guy that really helped me with that Love that. And I try to explain to my four foot 11 wife who knows little about basketball and she's slowly through our, you know, 10 year relationship realized what basketball means to me and what, you know, the opportunity to coach is right. It's that opportunity to give back and kind of be a part of something. And I I just love that, man, such a good speaker. This is great. We could go on forever. Hopefully we're not uh, taking too much time from you. No, we're good, man. We're good. Awesome. it's funny because you know when i got into the broadcasting with the vancouver grizzlies yeah um, that's I what loved, we're chatting about I next loved, yeah oh good well i'll I'll just go right into it i mm-hmm. love doing that because i was around the nba game and um i learned so much even though the grizzlies weren't winning you learn a lot about the game you learn a lot about the nba and i was just like man this is really cool but 
you don't win and you don't lose. And I, 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 I never went back to my room and went, hey, great job. You called a good game. Or, man, you called a bad game. This is a rough night. I never did that. And that's what, you, that's what I think I've always had. I said it from the very beginning. I've got, I, I want to compete. I want to play. I want to win. I want to lose. I want to, I want to, I want to be part of it, uh, figuring out the strategy. So um, as great as that was to learn the NBA, it wasn't winning or losing. And it was a great profession. And it was fantastic. And I loved every minute of it. But I still want to compete. Uh, I, I still want to compete. And, I, and, that, and that's where I kind of started leaning more towards coaching rather than broadcasting. And the broadcasting was great. But I, I don't even remember if I broadcast when Terry Fox with Dan Russell. I don't know if I did the Terry Fox gold medal game. I knew I was recruiting. 93? Yeah, it would have been yeah. 93. That was, I was grade 10 then. Yeah, they beat North Delta with Rammer, Davis Sanchez. Yep. And yeah. so was Brett on that team or did Brett, Brett was the you? Brett was MVP. Yep. Yep. And, and what about Chris, Chris Sarka? Was he on Chris that Sarka team? was on that team. Yep. Chris Sarka, yeah. Dave yeah. Morgan, Vic Gregor. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I remember, Rammer. I remember, I remember Sarka because I always liked the physical guys, man. If there was a physical kid, I, I, I wanted him. He ended up playing football. Um, but uh, I was like, man, I love that kid. Even if he comes to Simon Fraser to play football, I'll be okay with that. But, I, I always liked the physical guys. Yeah, Crazy. no, that was him. And he did a real, he had carved himself a really nice career in Saskatchewan and is yeah. uh, still doing well out there. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I believe he did that. Was it like Rogers 4 or whatever, or whatever that cable yeah, channel was? Like yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyways, broadcasting, all... broadcasting yeah. is fun, but it, it's not like competing. And that, even, even to this day, you know, uh, mm-hmm. um, I had a chance uh, before I went to Portland to work with Terry Stotts. Uh, I got offered a chance to be the assistant GM to Masai Ujiri in Denver with the Nuggets when he was there. And uh, I, I, I was like, man, it wasn't for a lot of money, and it, was, it would have been a transition into a front office role. But, again, it came down to just it's, I'm, I'm too competitive right now. I, I love the games, and I want to compete. So I took the job with the Blazers instead. But, uh, you know, it's funny how things can go a different way. Yeah, and then look at Masai's path too, right? Yeah, crazy. Yeah. I wonder if I would have, if if that would have happened, if he would have had the chance to go to Toronto, if I would have gone right. back there with him. I, you know, you don't know all that, but yeah, I, I, I don't have any, I don't have any regrets. And I don't want you to throw throw you in the hot pot right now, but is there a better voice than Kevin Calabro? No, or are we just too biased? Like, it just grew up. Yeah, did we just? I know. Yeah, yeah, and we just grew up with the Sonics, right? And now he's the Blazers. Like to me, he's like Mozart. Like when I hear that guy's voice, I'm like, he's just so yeah. smooth. Well, you know, when I was coaching at Simon Fraser, even like the drives down to play all the games in the Pac West out there, uh, where we were playing all the time, we always listened to we always listened to the Sonic games on the radio, and that's when I, you know, you first listened to Calabro, and it was just like, man, this guy, what a what a great voice. Yeah, unreal. Feed the Hawk for Hersey Hawkins, I always remember. Before we keep keep moving forward with where you're at and getting back with the national team and everything, I, the thing that I always remember, right, I, I was a grad of 95, and I always remember, you know, I went and played for Phil Langley my first year and was spent a lot of time on the hill with Nove and Rammer and McCrory and Dave Wall and all those guys, right? I mean... One thing Mega and I talked about, and he was very open and honest about, you know, his experience there 
Um, and obviously, you know, Scotty came in and did a great job, but like what you were able to build, like that team, like I'm not sure people realized just the program that you had built by the time that you had moved on with the Grizzlies. You know, you're bringing in Garachi and, you know, mm-hmm. no, no, Novi breaks the assist record in three years. And like you're obviously a yeah. super humble guy, but I think um, it's important to just note like your people skills in your recruiting process must have been so, and we've talked about relationships already, but um, you to be able to to have a place like SFU and you to go across Canada, you know, did you bring in Chris Gill too? Did you recruit him? Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. right? And like yeah. you literally went coast to coast. And just talk a little bit about that and, and what your focus was on it in terms of trying to build a program at a place like Simon Fraser that was competing in the States. And we had Steve Hansen, the current SFU coach on already as a guest as well. It's a unique scenario, but I'm not sure it, there's a period of time. Like, I don't know if people realize just how strong that, that team was. Cause like mega went on and was a three-time all Canadian and the player of the year. Yeah. And, you know, Chris Gill obviously had injuries, but Tony McCrory broke high school records and Garachi's an Olympian and no, like, wow, what a, what yeah. a, program that you were building was it hard to move on from that or were you just so excited about the Grizzlies that yeah it it was it was so hard I mean because like and I think Steve Maga was one of the one of the guys that was you know it it crushed me because I just finished recruiting him and Garashi I'd gotten Garashi to come out there and but I let me cut you off really quick yeah Mega Mega tells the story come to a hockey game and you told them that they water the cement after the game And then that funny, funny story I was telling you was so Jay took me, uh, he took me to a Vancouver Canucks game, which I thought was great. You know, I'm a hockey guy too, and a basketball. Yeah. I go in, and we're coming out of the the Vancouver Canuck game, and and he says, you know, as we walk out, you know, they, they water down the concrete here to uh, you know, after we come out of the game every night for us. It's 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 for our convenience, and he, he must have thought I was a little crazy little naive MAGA from uh, Ontario is looking at him like, oh, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. And he's like, no, I mean, you know, it rained, it rained, man, it rained. I said, oh, that's okay, I'm not worried about that. He said, what? Because he had, you said to him that they wa- they watered the pavement, and but basically because it just pisses rain in Vancouver all the time, and he was like, <laughs> And then he took the bait. He was like, oh, that's interesting. Why would they uh, water the cement? And oh had God. no idea that you're cops and that it actually rains a ton in Vancouver, right? Oh, man. <laughs> Crazy. No, it's, it was, I'll tell you, that, that was, it was a really tough thing. Um, and that's where you, as, you know, I loved coaching them. And I loved those guys. And we had a great group of guys, as you mentioned, all of them. And, oh, um, Sean O'Brien. Yeah. I mean, just what like, a salt of the earth that guy. Yeah, they're yeah. all just good people. All of them, good yeah. people. And uh, it just really, it was, it was really tough. But when I sat them all down and told them about the offer that I had, they were just like, "You got to do that. You got to do that." Yeah. Like, uh, you know, here comes the NBA, and you, you know, they're they're offering me a great position to work in the NBA in, in Canada. Uh, as something as part of a startup I always felt like if it didn't work out I could always go back but it sure was tough for guys that you recruit and make promises to that and you tell them that you know I want you to come here and play for me and then you're not going to be there anymore but you know what to this day I I still have great relationships with all those guys and um, they're 
the, the, you know, I feel bad for them, but I, I also, you know, you gotta, maybe that, maybe you teach them something in that too, that there's going to be change and, um, you can't be in the same thing for the rest of your life and you gotta, you're gonna have to make change and, and it can be positive for everybody. For sure. And you look at like Mega's a high school coach and teacher now and, uh, Rammer, Obes, those guys got in heavy into the EA sports, right? Even Nove, and then Nove's obviously coaching mm -hmm. out at Brandon, coaching the women, and did, their paths you, have all taken different journeys. Did mm -hmm. you ever? Hear, did you ever hear the EA story? No, I, I mean, I just know that all of a sudden, half the SFU team had a job at EA Sports. Yeah, and I so, lived with Nove. I lived with Nove at his house for a year, and he was doing the uh, NCA game, and would be flying down to go, you know, record Dick Vitale and stuff. So. Tell me a little more about that. So when I'm coaching at Simon Fraser, EA moves to Burnaby. And these guys call me and they say, listen, we have all these computer guys that know how to do all this, but we don't know basketball at all. And we're trying to build this basketball game. So can you help us? And I was like, sure. And they go, we'll give you 10 grand if you give us a scouting report and the top three plays of every team in the NBA. And I was like, oh, I can do that. So... I gave them a scattering report. So when the game went into default mode, it would run like the Bulls at the time would run the triangle. And, you know, they would. So I, I did all these scouting reports on all the NBA teams and submitted it all. And I went in and presented it. And they were all like, this is fantastic. This is unbelievable. And then the next day, I get another call. They said, now can you rate players? I said, sure. So as we're driving down to play games with Simon Fraser in the front seat, I would be driving and my manager would be going, okay, Ray Allen, shooter. And all the guys in the back would be going, nine, eight, nine, nine, ten, nine. And we'd go, okay, give him a nine. We'd go, defense, five, four, five, three, five, give him a five. And we took the average from what the Simon Fraser University players thought. And that's how they, that was how the ratings went for the first game. <laughs> So I take all that. that. So all that stuff, all that stuff goes in, and I present it all, and they're blown away. They're going, "This is fantastic!" And I, they said, "Do anybody, any of your guys, need a summer job?" And I said, "Well, how many can you take? Because I have twelve players." And they said, "We'll take all twelve if they want." So I went back to practice the next day. I go, "Who needs a summer job?" And they go, "What would we do, coach?" And they go, "You'd be playing a video game, and you would t you would write down when things weren't right." Or if, the, if you found a glitch somehow. So these guys, they were all like, yeah. Well, a couple of guys didn't. A couple of guys had construction jobs or whatever. So anyway, I think about 10 of them went down there and had a summer job testing games. And they would go, this guy, every time, every time he shoots from center, it goes in. And the, and the guys who are the computer guys would go, oh, does that not happen? And they go, no, it doesn't. And they go, how many times does it happen? Uh, I don't know. Well, let's go down to the gym. So they all practice shooting from center. Oh, one out of every 15 goes in. Okay fix the game so the computer guys went back and fixed the game and they they th that's what they did and now at the same time i i told all our guys you know and, and i think this is as you as you are as a coach and as i was as a coach you teach people how to be good human beings please thank you be on time i you know i i gave them the list the, this is an organization you're going to be remembered for what you do here treat people the right way and and, and like you said now you know rammer Nov, Obes, they're still, they, well, not Nov anymore, but those guys are still working for EA Sports. Uh, what is yeah. that, 30, 35 years later?
So it's kind of it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy, but uh, uh, all 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 because of right place, right time, and 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 going and and kind of just like we talked about with the with the, with being on a team, you know, treat people the right way and work your ass off. Awesome, love it. Got like three more things I just want to chat with you about. Sure. And, and you know, you appreciate your time, and then we're going to put you in the little lightning round and hear some real things about you. But um, I just really want to dive a little bit into like. You know, for me, as a guy that was, you know, decent basketball player, kind of on the cusp of like, you know, played provincial teams, all played with a bunch of great guys, but never really got close to like playing in the national level. Just my heart was, I'm so Canadian. And just to watch that run in 2000 was so special for me as a fan. And just to know the people that were there, right? Like, you know, we beat Eric Heinrichsen's team in, in the semifinal and when I was in grade 11 and, you know, beat Mavis's team in the final. Sorry, Mave. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and just to know a bunch of those guys and then to watch you guys go on that run, like just talk a little bit about, you know, I, I remember, you know, in our podcast, Mave talks about, you know, you guys qualified, but he's still on edge because he's thinking I, I still might get cut because it's a year, yeah. it's a year in advance, right. That you guys right. qualify. So he's, right. He's like, I've still got to be prime. I've still got to do my thing. And just, you've already talked a little bit about how special that group was. And it was so clear. CBC did such a good job of portraying you guys and jumping into who you were as a group. And you could just, you could see the energy and the positive way that you guys were with each other. But from a coaching yeah. perspective, and you know, you've had many special moments, but I'm, I'm sure that has to be up there. And if you don't mind just talking a little bit about what that was like and some cool moments um, yeah. it'd be great to hear it's my I, I, podcast so so screw it <laughs> no it, it's um i honestly think the biggest thing that happened was a meeting that we had in richmond uh with david cox our sports psychologist and the players and um they i don't i, I can't even remember how it got up but it got really deep and it got i would i want to say fairly emotional um we we had these meetings uh, where we would talk about how we want to be portrayed and and what our goal was going in there and everything and um, the I think one of the players asked me if I had any regrets from from my because one of the things they said we want to have no regrets and I said well in 1984 when we qualified for the Olympics in Los Angeles we were in Sao Paulo Brazil and. It was like bad. You can't leave the hotel. Uh, I remember Eli Pasquale and I would, after meals, would walk around the block of the hotel. We'd just walk around the hotel and then right back to our rooms all the time. And we were very together. And I said, we played unbelievable and we qualified. When we got to the Olympics, we were all over the place because it was in Los Angeles. So families, fiancés, roommates from college, uh, parents, girlfriends, every, everybody was coming into L.A., and we were never together as a team. Uh, we would meet back at residence or in the village at, at night. And, and I told them, I said, you know, some guys had gone to a baseball game. Some guys had gone out for dinner with their parents. And we had never been like that before. But because it was so close and everybody wanted to be part of the Olympic experience, I said, it pulled us on all sorts of different directions. And we lost one game to Yugoslavia to win a bronze medal. And I said, so I, to this day, I have that as a regret. And I don't know if it was how I told the story or not, but Steve, I don't even think he was the first person to speak. I think the first person to speak was Todd McCulloch said, uh, Coach, um, I just, 
I just got married and we were kind of using Sydney. It was going to be part of a, a honeymoon thing, but I'm going to tell them, I'm going to tell my wife we can do our honeymoon thing afterward. And I'm going to commit to being with these guys in the village all the time. And Steve wow. Nash stood up and said, I have aunts and uncles coming and I'm, I'm with Todd. I'm, I, I, I don't, I, I, I want to see them. And maybe there's a day we can say we'll see them. But for the rest of that, I want to be locked in on why we're here. And, and I told him, I said, you know, it's two weeks of your life that you will never get back and that you, would, you don't want to leave there with the regrets. I remember Garashi stood up and said, he said, my parents are coming and I'd like this rule because I don't want to see anybody. I want to just hang out in the village. I want to be with you guys. And when we went into the village, we were the envy of every other athlete there because they couldn't figure out why every single meal, all 12 basketball players walked over together to the to the re, to the meal hall and they sat with each other they didn't mingle with other athletes they didn't get caught up when they were doing it. they were 100 percent committed to their teammates and um I, th- I think that to me was what told me that this group was special and to this day those guys uh you know david cox when he speaks uh, to other olympians he talks about the canadian national basketball team and and everybody was like those guys you 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 could tell the way they walked around the village they were locked in and you know we're not even going to talk about the games where we upset australia in their home country Mm -hmm. where they got to choose us as the first game on opening night and we just put it right back on them and then we beat spain by 40 spain is a basketball powerhouse we beat yugoslavia yugoslavia was all one country back then and we beat yugoslavia uh we beat russia we you know it was just like uh we we just got on such a roll and our guys were so bought in and played so well together it was an ultimate team uh, so that that to me is why uh the memories from the, the from those olympics and it's 20 year anniversary this year uh was was a very very special time yeah, uh, Maeve actually sent the uh, the Aussie game the other day, and I watched the full thing. It was so phenomenal to watch. It was unbelievable. And obviously, you know, kudos to you and the culture that you built there. But if you don't mind, just take a couple minutes about, like, talk a little bit about Steve and just his ability to, to you know, to just make everyone feel a part of things. And how, what were his leadership skills that just maybe something well, that people don't even know about? Or, I mean, you know, we see it, we see it all and we read the books, but, like, when yeah. you're there every day and you get to experience a guy like Steve Nash, you, you got to just sit back in awe sometimes, right? Yeah, he he just changed he changed the whole culture of the team. Um, I'll, I forget, I never forget practicing at the Richmond facility, the Grizzly old Grizzlies facility there one time, and uh, Johnny Lee came back on to get on the bus after practice, and go, we were going back to the Richmond Inn, and uh, Johnny he starts counting. He goes, Coach, we 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 only got eleven guys, and I said, Let's go with him. And he goes, well, I said, who's not here? And he goes, see, he, he went back in the gym and he came, he came kind of walking out with his head hanging down and kind of shuffling his feet. And I said, who is it? He goes, it's Steve. He says he's not going back to eat lunch until he makes 500 threes. I said, okay, well, well now this is where as a coach, what, what, do you, what do you do? So I said, we'll wait. And the rest of the players started mumbling, like, who are we waiting for? Who are we waiting for? And then it kind of made its way back. It's Steve. He's not coming until he makes 500 threes. And to every one of those other 11 guys felt like that that the best player on our team was in there committed to making so many shots. And these guys were worried about getting back to the hotel to eat. The next day, it was like, guys, we have to get on the bus. 
And like we couldn't get guys out of the gym. And in one day he changed that. But the biggest thing about Steve was all of this, he never wanted to be treated any differently than just an average player. He it, like, uh, I, I know that if, if you've read the book, we talk about, uh, you know, through the NBA Players Association, I had to get him a first-class seat uh, to go to, you know, 17-hour flight to Sydney. And we take off, and I turn around, and he's in a middle seat in the economy with people jammed beside him. And I said, dude, I had to buy you the first-class seat. Don't put on a show here. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, the seven-footers are, are breaking it up. They're each going to use it for six hours. So not only did wow. he give up the seat. I don't know. I don't know. I honestly, I said this all, all the years that I've coached in the NBA. I don't know another NBA player that would do that. That would say, Hey, you guys are bigger than me. Take my seat. You know? And, and when he did that, it was just like, uh, it, it was just crazy. And he, and he, you know, another thing he said, coach, I, I make a lot of money playing in the NBA. I want to give money to some of these guys. These guys are amateurs. And some of them don't have, didn't have a job this past year and they committed this. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a large sum of money, and I want you to div- divide it up amongst the players. And I don't want them to know where it came from. And I was just like, man, I, I just don't know anybody that. And he goes, you decide when you, when you want it, but I want them to make sure that their Olympic experience is is the best. Uh, but Steve didn't want to. Be, he 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 told me I don't want a single room like the NBA Players Association. He says I'm not going to tell anybody. I want a roommate just like everybody else, and I, I want to be. I don't want to be treated any differently. And it, it's so easy to coach. So easy to coach. And in a coaching thing, I'll never forget one game. I think it was the qualifying tournament, though. I said, we're going to guard this guy, and we're going to go We're going to go over top on the screen here and see if we can push him in and stuff. And, and Steve kind of, at the end of practice, not, not while I was going through the scouting part, at the end of practice, he came over and said, Coach, I don't really want to go over top on that. I, 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 think I, can, I think I can get underneath it, and I think we'll be better off. He says, but I didn't want to interrupt you in front of everybody because, you know, I want, I want these guys to believe in everything you're saying. I said, man, I, I appreciate that. And he goes, and, and, and let's start this way. But maybe, maybe during the first time out. So anyways, Steve's exactly right. We go over top and the guy burns us twice. And then and I, we call a timeout and I said, hey, we're going to change things up here. Steve, I want you to go under this guy now. He kind of winks at me and goes, gotcha. We ends up going underneath, and we stop the guy for the rest of the game. So, uh, just as a, how he respects and acts as a coach to a person as well. And, you know, honestly, there's not there's not a better dude, let alone better basketball player. So it was it was kind of crazy to be able to coach him. That's phenomenal! Holy smokes! <laughs> I'll take like an intermission after those stories. Yeah, that's crazy stuff. And just to be that humble, and just so many things for the young. We know we have some of our kids that listen to the podcast, and just for them to hear that no matter how they end up turning out in life, like just to just all those lessons right there. Like, wow. Thank you. Thank you for those stories. I know you you don't have to tell them and those are greatly appreciated. Just two more things. I just want to touch on. Talk to me about when you got a call or the opportunity to coach in the NBA and how that felt like these, you must, you know, a, a lot of the people that have made it even further than maybe just playing university, talk about timing and luck and mm-hmm. I kind of believe there's that but also like good things come to to good people right if you treat people well you know yeah. and you, and you you don't burn bridges people will come yeah. and things will come you know things will come to you but like when that opportunity comes around are you kind of pinching yourself or are you like no I got this um uh, I can't how did I I can't remember where I was I think I was in a in a kayak in Tawasson and <laughs> Glenn Grunwald, 
like Glenn Grunwald, who was the GM of the Raptors, was like, uh, I've talked to Lenny. Lenny's open to having you meet with him. You got to go down, drive down to Seattle and have lunch with him. So I, I had all this stuff prepared and everything. I drove down. I had lunch with Lenny. We had lunch and we didn't talk basketball one time. So again, it goes back to the X's and O's and stuff. It's a people thing. And uh, I didn't know whether he was going to hire me or not. We just had lunch and I drove back to Vancouver. I was in a kayak with my kids and I had my phone with me because I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss this call because the call was coming, supposed to be coming sometime this day. So I had it in my shirt tucked in and rolled so I could feel it vibrate as we're out in the kayak. Well, we pull the kayak up to the beach. I forget that my phone is there and I jump out and my phone goes back and forth through three feet of water and it's done. And that's the only number they have for me. So I'm like, oh man, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I had to find out his number and call him from a landline and just say, hey, I, I just had an accident with my phone. I'm just wondering if there's any update. And he said, oh yeah, Lenny, Lenny called. Yeah, you're good. You're in. And I was just like, holy I mean, I'm going to be an assistant coach in the NBA. This is crazy. Um, so anyways, I, I went back to Toronto. But, uh, you know, you talk about luck and, and everything. And, you know, I was in Toronto because I was doing some work for TSN at the time after um, I left the radio show in Vancouver. But you talk about luck. And, I, you know, I don't know if it was Jack or Stan who said, you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So if you're prepared. And I just made sure that I was super prepared for the opportunity. And uh, the opportunity came up. Now, what people don't know, Aaron, is I got fired after that first year in Toronto. Well, they fired Lenny Wilkins and they fired his whole staff. And I was just like, dang. Kevin O'Neill came in as the head coach. And he, Kevin O'Neill came in and he said, uh, Hey, I, I know who you are. I've watched you work with the national team. You've done a good job, but I need my own people in here. So I'm not going to hire, keep you on for next year. So I, you're not going to be coaching. I said, okay. So I was still coaching the national team and we were coaching at the Raptors facility. And Kevin O'Neill was in to watch one of our practices. And at the end of practice, he comes up to me and says, Here, here's a guy. Let him come in to watch practice. All right. I could have a vengeful attitude and say, no, no guests. But no, Kev, come on in and watch. It's your gym. You're letting us use the gym. Come on in and watch. He watches one of our practices. After the practice, he goes, listen, I think I might have a spot behind a bench for you. And I was like, dang. So I got fired and hired. Then at the end of that year, Kevin O'Neill gets fired, and they fire all of us again. So I got fired after my first two years in the NBA. Um, and then Sam Mitchell came in. And again, this is one of those stories for young people that are listening. It's never know when you have a chance to impress somebody. Sam Mitchell comes in, and, and, and they're all like, no, all the coaches are gone. He's going to bring in his own guys. Um, Sam Mitchell comes into my office, and he goes, hey, uh, uh, and, and I had been a back row guy for my first two years that I got fired. Uh, he, he, he says to me, he says, uh, listen, um, I'm, I'm going to keep you, and I want you to come up to the front of the bench. I want you to be like a, a, a main contributor to our team. And I was like, okay. I thought we were going in a different direction. He goes, no. He says, yeah, they told me I could hire whoever I wanted and that the staff from last year was gone. He says, but Antonio Davis is a guy that I played with in Indiana and a guy that I really respect. And I asked him what type of an assistant coach you were. And Antonio was the guy that I worked out every day. But I, Antonio had been in the league for 10 years. I had been in for two. So when it, when it came to do a scouting report, I'm going, okay, Patrick Ewing. I'm going to stand up in front of the team and tell these guys how to play Patrick Ewing. I said, no. I said, I, I said Antonio. I said, I just quietly, we, I would sit down. I go, what's the best way to guard Patrick? You put, you've guarded him like 53 times in your career already. 
oh, he's a guy that you got to play, you got to meet him early and all this and that. I said, man, perfect. Thanks, man. So I took his notes because I, I, I said this earlier in, on this podcast. You can't fool these guys. If I went in there and pretended that I knew how to stop Patrick Ewing, they're going to look at me and go, get the f- out of here. Uh, but instead, it's like he's looking at me and he's going, man, this kid's listening to me. He's trying to learn. This is good. And, you know, he got some advice from me. He got some advice from a couple of other guys. Boom. And that's how I did it. Anyways, Antonio Davis was a teammate of Sam Mitchell. Sam Mitchell called him and asked him about me. Antonio said, I'd hire that guy. Sam did. And so and ended up staying in Toronto until I became the head coach there. So it's kind of it's kind of like you're, you're right. It's, it's, it's luck. It's timing. It's in the right place, right time. But uh, you know what? Had I treated Antonio Davis uh, with no respect, I would have never got that third opportunity. And it was three strikes, I could have been out. Yeah. Wow. Now we're, now, now we're looking at 25 years in the league. It's crazy. That's how long. That's yeah. bananas. It's nuts. <laughs> Absolutely nuts. bananas. Yeah. Last question for you. And, uh, and then I know Corbin will have one, but um, can you just share a little bit about that 2010 year? Cause I was always intrigued and then I didn't get a chance till I read your book, but I was always intrigued when coach K brought you on. Right. And I know, you know, yeah. some stuff has happened with Canada basketball and you're professional. We don't want to get there. It's more about your journey and your story, but like possibly the greatest coach in basketball coach in the world or one of right fair mm-hmm. to say yeah you know calls you up and asks you to be a part of it because he sees your intelligence and understanding of the international game um yeah. one how humbling is that and two mm-hmm. can you talk about the meeting where you walked in and told the u.s team about <laughs> their actions and how they were like i just that that is a, such a cool story yeah it's it's it, it was it was my book so uh, the United States, after they lost to Greece, they basically said we're the best basketball players in the world, but we're not the best international player or FIBA players in the world because we don't know the FIBA game well enough, obviously, because we lost. So when they started doing all that, they, try, they were trying to hire someone from Europe to come in and teach them the international game. And my boss at the time was Brian Colangelo, and Jerry Colangelo was running the U.S. team. And he was like, well, let me pass it by Mike, but what about Jay? He's the guy who's played in the Olympics. He's coached in the Olympics. You know, he's right here, and we don't have to bring somebody in. We won't have a language issue or anything else. And so he went to Coach K, and I've known Coach K over the years because he used to come and watch Jack Donahue coach our national team when I was a young player on the national team. Uh, he coached a bunch of guys that I knew, so I knew him a little bit. But he basically said, uh, we want, we'd like you to come to Vegas. And we need to learn the international game. So I put together this project uh, where the differences between the NBA and the international game and so on. So I go into this first meeting and it's uh, Jerry Colangelo, Mike Krzyzewski, Jim Beheim, uh, Nate McMillan, Mike D'Antoni all sitting there. And I'm just going, man, this is, this is crazy. I'm nervous as shit, but this is pretty cool. And uh, Coach K goes, okay, can you go through the differences in the game? So, you know, I had a very, very good presentation memorized in my head. I had it on paper as well, but I had it memorized in my head. You know, the difference in the lane line, uh, how to set screens internationally, what you can get away with, the rule changes, knocking the ball off the rim, and so on. And he was like, this is, uh, this is great. This is, this is exactly what we need. We need, to, we need to teach our guys this. So uh, are you prepared to talk to the players tomorrow? And I said, yeah, for sure. And he goes, okay, so um, I'm probably in the afternoon or something like that. I said, great. And then he said, um, 
we we started having dinner after that. And so I'm sitting there going, I'm going to take advantage. They didn't like escort me out like it was an interview. It was like, yes, yeah, have dinner with us. So we talked hoops for the next three hours straight. And they then he started going, hey, what, Jay, what does the rest of the world think about us? And I said, uh, he goes, no, no, be honest, be honest. And I go, oh, well, I mean, there's an arrogance. You guys have an arrogance. And, a, you know, and why, why are we not good in the NBA game? Or in the in the FIBA game, I said, "Well, it's a shorter game, and you know, egos. You guys have egos, and guys got to score his points, and there's a lot. They got to understand there's a lot less possessions, which means a lot less points, and so on." And I said, "So there's a selfishness and an arrogance." And he goes, "Hey, listen." And he goes, "Jerry, tomorrow when you introduce me, can I introduce Jay? Jay, I want you to give the rules difference about the FIBA game, and then I want you to tell them that too." And I said, "Oh, for sure, for sure." And then I went back to my room and I just went, what did I just promise to do? And I, I'll tell you what, I did not sleep the whole night figuring out how to politically tell these guys that they're selfish and arrogant at the same time. And, I, I, and, and again, this goes to, goes to Coach K because we're about to go into the meeting and Jason Kidd, who is the captain of the team, walks up to me and he goes, hey, Coach, can I tell you, talk to you for one second? I said, for sure. And he goes, I know you're going to speak today. So Coach K had obviously said something to Jason Kidd. And he said, I know you're going to speak today. And he said, number one thing, he said, don't hold back. We need to hear this. Shit. I was like, okay. And that just kind of gave me, okay. And I'm, but I'm standing in front of Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Chris Bosch. You know, all these guys are, are, are Dwight Howard. They're all sitting right there. And I, I told them all the rules and everything. And uh, from that point on, it was like, yeah, I'm, I was coach of the select team for like three years. And then, um, the select team was like, was the guys that weren't good enough to be on that team. Uh, so I had in the gym and every day we would practice and we would be a different country and I would put them through Brazil stuff so that when they, we played against Kobe and LeBron and those guys, we were playing Brazil style and my guys were just a bunch of guys that weren't good enough. They were like Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Love. Um, we had unbelievable guys on this team. Uh, Derek Rose, Kawhi Leonard one year, uh, Gordon Hayward one year. So I'm coaching all these guys, and we're trying to pretend we're other countries going into the gym to play these guys. And uh, so I, the, second year, the second year that I did it, Mike D'Antoni couldn't make the trip, and Coach K said, listen, you coached all these guys. You know them better than I do, like, you know, from the summers with KD and those guys. So uh, do you want to be an assistant on this team? And I said, heck, yeah, I'm not going to turn this down. And I ended up going and uh, winning a world championship with them. So it was it was uh, it was it was an unbelievable basketball experience. Greatest, greatest experience ever. Um, you know, I talk about the room that I was sitting in with those guys. Well, it was like that for eight hours a day for 10 weeks. Um, and, you know, around that basketball, you can't buy that clinic. You can't buy that value of time with great people. And I got to know them all as friends and I got to know them all as, as coaches. So it's just something that really helped me throughout my career. And it was, it was a, a, a fantastic basketball experience. Just a dude from uh, Tilsonburg, hey? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. How about that? Awesome. I, Love it. Was it. Al it was always my goal was to win like the world championships or the Olympics. And, you know, obviously I wanted to do it with Canada and, and, and so on. But when that didn't work out, it didn't stop me from, you know, finding, finding a different way to do it. Yeah. Awesome. Love your ability to just stick with things and so determined and so many great things. Corbin, do you have a question for coach before we uh, head, head to the lightning round and let him get on um, his way here this, this evening? This is incredible. I'm, I'm a, 
you know, young head coach and uh, just listening to the stories and uh, all the things I'm picking up is fantastic. So again, thank you for your time, coach. No, my pleasure. You've coached a lot of, you know, fantastic players in the NBA. And again, the names you listed a couple minutes ago are just can't be beaten. But, you know, who is the Sean Swords of the NBA? Oh, good call. Okay, Corbs. Good question. Good question. I think in the NBA, it's a little bit different, Um, you know, because everybody's got the talent and you're either trying to get over the hump. So Bismack Biombo, one of the guys that I'm with right now, is might be one of the best team guys. He's just always positive, always wants to teach the younger guys, knows that he's teaching somebody that might take his minutes. Um, I got a lot of respect for him. I got a lot of respect for guys like that that aren't afraid to help everybody. I think my favorite, not player, uh, my favorite person in the NBA is Damian Lillard. Ooh, uh, let's go. The yes. Guy, the guy is, he's about as normal as you can get. He challenged me every day. I'm, I'm the coach. I'm supposed to challenge him. But every day that I would walk into the gym, uh, I don't know why we had, we hit it off uh, the, from the very first. We both got to Portland at the same time, but we hit it off right off the bat. And the, he would say to me every day, coach, what do, you, what do you have for me to make me better today? And it scared the out of me that every day I was driving in, I was going to say, what do I have for Damien today? But it made me better. And I always had something. I always had something for him. But here's a guy where I don't think this is the type of swords type thing or the, it's, it's a similar to a Nash type thing. We sign a guy on a 10 day and we go to the hotel and he's not in his room the next day to bring him to practice. And we get to the gym and he's in the gym with Lillard. And we're like, man, you weren't in the you weren't in the room. We were supposed to pick you up this morning. He goes, no. And Dame goes, I'm not letting him stay in a hotel room. He's staying at my house. He said, if if we expect this guy to come out here for ten days and play with us, he needs to know us. He needs to feel part of this team. So he's coming to stay in my house, not in a hotel room. And I've never seen that before. I've never even heard of that before. A, a league where guys mm-hmm. are so individual and so to themselves. Damian Lillard is a, is a guy who just likes to be a team guy. And Damien told a story I didn't even know. Like some of the some of the stuff that you tell these guys, you don't even know how it affects them. But Damien told a story, and this is three years after I had been removed from Portland. He goes, "No, Coach Triano taught me that." And I said, and it, it, I think it was Zach Lowe or somebody was the, the reporter who did it. He was like, "Do you remember telling him this?" I go, "What did he say?" And he said, "Well, he said you guys were watching young guys pre- play before a game. The guys weren't going to play. They were playing three on three. And something funny happened, and Damien was laughing at one of the guys. And you looked at Damien and said, why are you laughing at them? He said, those guys respect you, and they're going to probably be part of this team and help you one time, and so you should never put them down, no matter what they do. And Damien Damien told him that story that I had told him that. So Damien said, I never disrespect any of my teammates ever again after Coach Triano told me that. That f***ing leadership. Wow. Yeah, he's... He's he's the, he's the best. I mean, like he just he, to this day. I mean, he he sent me messages. What, what it's like in the bubble? Um, what are you doing or whatever? And you know, we we stay in, we stay in touch. You know, as much as we can. But he's one of my favorite. One of my favorite people. Obviously, Nash and I have a, a, mm-hmm. a different relationship. But yeah, I, I I don't know. There's something about there's something about the bad guys in the NBA that I like. Like I don't mean the bad guy, the rough guys. Like. Uh, mm. um, you know, like Weber State, Josh man. Jackson. 
Josh Jackson, uh, yes, I really liked yes. him in Phoenix. Uh, he, you know, I, I, you know, he, he's got, he's had a bad rap, and he he doesn't do the right things all the time. But uh, I've always had a, a way with those guys. Uh, I don't know Amir Johnson mm-hmm. in Toronto. Just a, a, a James Johnson when he was in Toronto was in a lot of trouble of that. But I don't know. I just kind of let be a be a figure for those guys to bounce things off of. Show them that you care about them. And I think as coaches, that's what these guys want more than anything. They want the coach to care about them. So you care about them. You're going to didn't get you uh, break down film with Josh Jackson? And he said it was the first time he's ever watched film of himself. Something I read a story about that. Yeah, I did. I yeah. did. I did a lot with Josh because Josh was like. You know, we we had to move Josh out of his house, and you know he 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 went through a lot of stuff. He went through a lot of stuff that was uh, it was not going to help him with his NBA career. And I, I remember watching film. I watched. You, hey, you care about these guys, man. I, I, he's still today, this day, one of my favorite players. I, and I, listen, I love Book too. Book was a great guy. Book Book's basketball IQ is extremely high. Uh, not many guys. Uh, not many guys you can you know go toe to toe with. But he he just he just gets it. Awesome. Thank you, Coach. Amazing. Lillard, easily my favorite player in the NBA, for sure. Yeah. Love that guy. He's just he's just got it all, man. He's such a good yeah. dude. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, this one might not have been on the roster, so I'm going to throw it at you quick here. You hop in the car tomorrow. We got the Jay Triano, like, top 10 artist playlist. Who... Who are your some of who are some of your favorite artists all time? What's oh, on Spotify? Man. It's changed. It changed when I went to Portland. It changed the car that I bought there. I didn't know how to change the station the first week that I I couldn't figure out how to change it. So that when I when I got to Portland, I was a I was a rock and roll guy, Springsteen and all that shit. And then I get there and it's on it's stuck on a country station for for the first week and never listened to anything except country since. Oh man, I am a country guy. Zach Brown, I'll go to his concerts. I'll Luke Bryan, Blake Sheldon, I'll go. To, I, I, I've been to so many country concerts now; it's crazy. But it all started with a with a radio that I couldn't change in Portland. Wow! So we have the Blazers to blame for that, hey? <laughs> 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 what are your thoughts on ketchup on macaroni? No salsa. Ooh, a scoop of salsa. Take the macaroni. Don't waste the ketchup on it to give it that flavor. A little bit of Frank's hot sauce and a scoop of salsa out of oh. your fridge. Boom. Throw it on and mix it in with the macaroni. Wow, that's a remix we haven't got yet. There you go. Yeah, I'll report back. Forbes, you can report back to us on that? Sorry, Mavis. <laughs> You've obviously been around so many amazing players as a coach, but I want to know, as a player, who was the greatest player you played against, do you feel? Michael Jordan. Now he's my boss. So he just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, so you just, he was just, you just saw that right away. It was just, it was that yeah. obvious. Hey, yeah. Our scouting report said how great he was and and stuff and uh, what he was going to do and that. But then you get out there and you go, you know, he's going to do it and he still does it. And there's no way you can stop it. It was just like, yeah, he's, yeah. Michael Jordan was the best player I ever played against, and, and I was fortunate. I got to do it three or four times. I told him, I told him at, a, at one of our shoot arounds, he was down on the floor. And uh, he said something about about Canada, and I said, "Dude, I said the one game we played in Los Angeles, I had fifteen, and you had thirteen. And he goes, <laughs> he looked at me, and he stared like right through me. He goes, "Who won the game?" I saw you guys won the game. Just I saw it matters. 
And I was just like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. But anyways, he goes, besides, and then he goes, besides, you were the dirtiest player ever. I was like, dirty? He goes, oh, come on, man. He goes, and then he, he looked at like Kemba or somebody. He said, Kemba, you didn't play against this guy, man. He's dirty as shit, man. He hold, he clutch, he grab, he do whatever he could. I was like, man, I was like, I, I was, I was honestly, I was proud. I was proud that one of the greatest players in the game remembered me, number one. And he wouldn't remember yeah. me if I wouldn't have been soft. So I, I, I felt good. Love it. That's awesome. Three more before we go. And thank you so much. The most important person in your life has been? Um, so many people. I, I, you don't, have, you don't have to I narrow said, it to just I, one. I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say my family. Mm. You know, and, and that's, that's, that could be... It could be real tight to my mom, dad, and my brother, and my sister, or even to my kids. Who, and for any, all of them, for allowing me to pursue and be so consumed with the sport. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know as well. Like, it's one thing to be a player, but then to to become the coaching life, like, oh, takes man, a lot no. of buy-in from a whole bunch of other people, right? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. The the amount of hour. I, you don't even want to know the number of hours. Like it's like mm-hmm. all the time, and you're you're breaking down film. The, the, honestly, there is never a day that you don't think you could be doing one more thing. Like there's always something, you know. Um, so it, it, it's just so time consuming. And but when it's what you love doing, it's it, it doesn't seem like it's work. So it's fun. And that's the key. I think the key, the key to life, yeah. regardless of what you choose, for sure. Absolutely. You got three seventy five American, which is like uh, fifteen dollars Canadian these days. Um, <laughs> you you roll into the store. What's the bag of chips you grab? The bag of chips. Yeah. What's the- salt and vinegar? <sighs> so many salt and vinegar lovers, corpse. Yeah. yeah, that's like the fifth person. Maeve. Randy Nor, Jordan oh, yeah. U. Yeah, they all Mave. Everybody was salt and vinegar. Was Mega? Was Scott? Oh, boy. Man, I don't know. Missing something here. And then last question before we let you go, and we really appreciate you, uh, you know, joining with us. This has been so fun. If you could do it all again, you would. Nothing. Nothing different, honestly. Uh, Why? Just, uh, I just don't, I don't ever have regrets about anything. I mean, yeah, you can win games, you can lose games, but everything everything goes on and you and you move on to the next one no matter what it is whether it's a goal that wasn't achieved or a goal that was achieved it's it's the next step forward and you know i've i've kind of i've got uh i've got two tattoos uh, dream big dreams which terry fox says and i got another one that says no day but today um you know and i learned that a long time ago it's from the soundtrack from rent yes but, uh it's a, which I saw like 15 times because I was just so inspired by it. But it's just so many things too. You know, yesterday doesn't matter. You learn from it. Tomorrow it's not certain, but today is cash in hand. There's no day but today. We'll live every single day the best that you can, and uh, you know, then then you're not worried about outcomes. You, ha- uh, but it's all about the process of getting through the day and doing what you love to do. Wow. There it is. I absolutely love it. Before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to add or comments or anything? And uh, we do, again, thank you for being with us. No, man. I'm, I'm glad to do this. I, like I said, I, I followed your career. I, I, I remember a lot of uh, 
a lot of basketball from my time at Simon Fraser and guys that I recruited and sent letters to everybody. And but uh, when I saw that you were doing this, it, I was like, man, this is this is cool. And I saw some of the guests that you had on, and it's like a who's who in Canadian basketball, at least in my circle. You know, like uh, mm-hmm. the names that you've mentioned, Randy Nor, I coached him, and 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 Maga and Mave, and, and and so on. So it's kind of it's, it's just kind of cool to be part of it. And I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, uh, you know, I think you're an inspiration to many, and you know, and Jay, one of the things I think that a lot of people will say about you is just how you've carried yourself so well throughout your career, and regardless that you're in the NBA, I think I'm forever grateful for what you did for our country. Obviously, wasn't around for a lot of you as a player, but starting that, and then the moments that you've created for so many, and the time and effort that you put into our nation's program when you didn't necessarily need to because you were in a position in your career where you had other things to go on but your canadian pride took over and i i will forever respect you for that and you recruited many good friends and coached many good friends of mine and um and i appreciate the small relationship with that we do have and for you to be on here corbin and i are not sure we might have to fold the podcast or um see if we can just get steve on as the next one and then call it a day because uh, I don't know where, where where we go from here, but continued success in your career and your basketball and your hoops journey. You're a Hall of Famer in many people's worlds, and um, we wish you nothing but success and that you stay safe during this COVID time and healthy and happy, and uh, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, guys, and good luck with all this stuff that you're doing and at, at St. Thomas More as well. All right, buddy. Appreciate it. Shout out to our sponsors, Good Lad Clothing and Parkside Brewery. Uh, what an amazing episode. Uh, We will see you next time. Thanks so much. Bye.